millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio Westeros, Episode 73, Dragons. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm one of your hosts, Lady Guinevere, and with me today, as always, is Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi everyone, and thanks so much for joining us today for this new episode all about dragons. In the upcoming months, we're going to offer a trilogy of episodes about the three prominent and mysterious species in A Song of Ice and Fire. This one will be on dragons, then we'll have one on the others, and finally we'll look at the children of the forest and greenseers. It's an exciting trio of episodes that we think will work very well together. So today our focus will be on those flying, fire-breathing creatures that so many of us love so much. We'll begin with a brief look at dragon mythology from the real world and examine why almost every culture features dragons of some sort and how this human obsession with a mythical creature has seeped into our storytelling and literature. Then we'll move on to a discussion about the origins of dragons in A Song of Ice and Fire. They're a mysterious species, and so we'll be putting our theory-crafting hats on and sharing some of our theories about how the Valyrians went from shepherds to dragon riders. Who were the mysterious Ashai that are said to have taught them about dragons? Are the fireworms of Valyria and the wyverns of Sothorios related to dragons? What was going on with those dark human experiments on Gagosus? And what's up with Valyrian blood? We've thought a lot about all of this, and there will be plenty of fresh ideas presented today. Next, we'll look at the characteristics of George's dragons. Hear how he designed his dragons to feel real. Again, there are many mysteries to be explored here, from the eggs to the magic to the bonds they form with their riders. We'll be speculating on the physical, psychic, and fantastical nature of George's dragons. And then we'll focus on the dragons themselves, with an in-depth look at the life and times of the dragons of A Song of Ice and Fire. Want to know what happened when Arya Targaryen rode Beleriand all the way to Valyria? Or when Genera Beleris took her dragon to explore Sothorios? Stay tuned as we focus on all of your favourite dragons in all of their magnificent colours and shapes and sizes. Oh, and did I mention we'll also have a dragon egg hunt? 
And finally, we'll discuss how the power of dragons has shaped history, first in Essos and then in Westeros. We'll talk about the conspiracy theories concerning the death of the last dragon and how Danny was able to bring them back from extinction, as well as taking into consideration the possibility that fiery dragons could one day be pitted against the icy others. And we'll conclude by assessing what makes George's dragons so special and how they've become a pop culture phenomenon. So much to say today, and we can't wait to share our analysis with you. We think this will be a really exciting and intriguing episode. But before we begin, we want to give a quick shout out to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Chris B, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Moltude, John Wigarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop, house motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. So if you want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash and you could be getting episodes early, personalised shoutouts, and more. Thanks to all patrons, we couldn't do this without you. And now, it's time to get started with dragons. Once a man has seen a dragon in flight, let him stay at home and tend his garden in content, someone had written once. For this wide world has no greater wonder. So let's start at the beginning. What is a dragon? Dragons are giant, reptile-like, legendary monsters. The Latin word draconum, meaning huge serpent, eventually found its way into the English language, evolving into the word dragon. Given dragons are a fictional, mythological invention of the human imagination, what's amazing is that there are versions of dragons present in the myths and art of almost every culture on Earth. In storytelling around the world, from ancient to modern times, dragons are a phenomenon. People are simply obsessed with this sort of monster, and although there are differences between dragons from place to place, such as western winged dragons versus the wingless dragons famous in Chinese culture, the fact that they are ubiquitous speaks to a connection of the human consciousness. The big question is, why are so many different cultures imagining the same fictional creature? Although this issue is still hotly debated by scholars and there are many different theories, there are two hypotheses in particular that interest us in attempting to explain the global dragon phenomenon. The first one we'll call snake theory. The evolution of the human mind from animal to rational thinker was a long and difficult journey, and one residual aspect of our modern brain that's rooted in our primal lifestyle is the fear of certain animals. Many of us jump when we see a tiny spider, panic at the thought of a shark, or wince at the sight of a snake slithering on its belly. And a fear of snakes is so common, in fact, that even in places where snakes don't reside, there's a high percentage of people afraid of them. So, the snake theory suggests that dragon imagery was born out of this collective fear of snakes and other reptiles, a fear that earlier in our evolution kept our primitive ancestors alert to danger amidst the very real threats of nature. 
the resulting innate fear that existed in our collective consciousness was represented in our art and stories, manifesting in exaggerated forms of the animals. Thus, a snake becomes a dragon. The other hypothesis that we find interesting we'll call bone theory. Bone theory suggests that our forebears might have stumbled upon the giant bones of prehistoric animals, dinosaurs, and other extinct species. Without an understanding of the primeval world, ancient people would have had to rationalize the unexplainable, and so they might have imagined giant monsters roaming the earth. And are some of those larger dinosaurs really that different from the concept of dragons? We think both of these ideas are worth considering, and we don't necessarily view them as being mutually exclusive. Although the human obsession with dragons is mysterious and might never be explained with certainty, a deep-rooted fear of reptiles and a curiosity about giant bones seems like a good place to begin. Whatever the case, the idea of dragons became a universal archetype over the course of human history. And of course, that seeped into our stories. Although oral stories have probably been with us since we've had language, the Mesopotamian poem, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is considered the oldest recorded literature. And in this ancient story, Gilgamesh slays a dragon named Humbaba. Already in circa 2000 BC, dragons were being written about. So who knows how far back undocumented dragon folklore goes? In the Middle Ages, there were more dragons included in our literature. In the circa 8th century epic Beowulf, which has had an enormous influence on fantasy storytelling, including the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, the titular character slays a dragon. And one of the primary sources for Arthurian legend, Geoffrey of Monmouth, from the 1100s, features dragons fighting in an underground lake, as we'll talk about later in the episode. In the modern period, we see a seven-headed dragon in The Two Brothers by the Brothers Grimm, the dragon-like Jabberwock in Lewis Carroll's poem Jabberwocky, and a cold northern and hot southern dragon in C.S. Lewis's The Pilgrim's Regress. And when J.R.R. Tolkien laid the foundation for modern fantasy with The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion, he included dragons such as Smog and Ancalagon, and it paved the way for other seminal authors to follow suit, such as Robert Heinlein, Ray Bradbury, Ursula Le Guin, Diana Wynne-Jones, and Terry Pratchett. And of course, there was one sci-fi writer out there who had an eye on modern fantasy. In 1980, George R. R. Martin released a children's fantasy novelette called The Ice Dragon. It begins, The Ice Dragon was a creature of legend and fear, for no man had ever tamed one. At about the same time, George visited Hadrian's Wall, which had marked the boundary between Roman Britannia and Caledonia, or Scotland, and he imagined what it was like to be a Roman soldier looking out to the north. The seeds of A Song of Ice and Fire were beginning to take root in his mind, and around 1991 he sat down to start to plan his epic fantasy magnum opus. However, even with his keen interest in dragons and his love of Tolkien, George still wasn't planning on including dragons in his story. 
Today we'll be examining how dragons ended up in George's series and how he designed them to be a part of the world he was creating. We'll consider what intriguing mysteries surround the dragons, what mark they've left on the in-world history, and what effect they've had on real-world culture. So let's first hear the story of how dragons came to exist in A Song of Ice and Fire, both from a meta and in-universe perspective, and consider the origins of George R. R. Martin's dragons. In fragments of Bart's unnatural history as remain, the Septon appears to have considered various legends examining the origins of dragons and how they came to be controlled by the Valyrians. The Valyrians themselves claim that dragons sprang forth as the children of the Fourteen Flames, while in Carth, the tales state that there was once a moon that cracked like an egg and a million dragons poured forth. In Ashai, the tales are many and confused, but certain texts, all impossibly ancient, claim that dragons first came from the shadow, a place where all of our learning fails us. These Ashai histories say that a people so ancient they had no name first tamed dragons in the shadow and brought them to Valyria, teaching the Valyrians their arts before departing from the annals. Yet if men in the shadow had tamed dragons first, why did they not conquer as the Valyrians did? It seems likelier that the Valyrian tale is the truest. But there were dragons in Westeros once, long before the Targaryens came, as our own legends and histories tell us. If dragons did first spring from the Fourteen Flames, they must have been spread across much of the known world before they were tamed. And, in fact, there is evidence for this, as dragon bones have been found as far north as Eib and even in the jungles of Sothorios. But the Valyrians harnessed and subjugated them as no one else could. When you open the pages of A Storm of Swords, you might notice that the book's dedication reads, For Phyllis, who made me put the dragons in. This Phyllis is Hugo and Nebula Award-nominated sci-fi and fantasy author Phyllis Eisenstein, who sadly passed away in 2020. In an interview with Talking TV Podcast in 2012, just as his television adaptation of Game of Thrones was taking off, George had this to say about the inclusion of dragons in his world. The dragons were one aspect that I did consider not including. Very early in the process, I was debating, should I do this just as historical fiction about fake history and have no actual overt magic or magical elements? But my friend Phyllis Eisenstein, a wonderful fantasy writer from Chicago, I happened to be talking with her at an early stage in the process. She said, nah, you have to have dragons. It's a fantasy, you know. And I dedicated A Storm of Swords to her, and I think that was the right thing to do. In advising George to include dragons in his story, Phyllis changed the trajectory of George R. R. Martin's career that seen him rise to the very top of the fantasy literature pantheon alongside J.R.R. Tolkien. Fans of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones fell in love with the fantasy world and can't imagine Westeros without dragons. But before writing dragons into his story, George had to first consider 
where they came from, what their history was before the main story, how they looked and behaved, and what effect they would have on the world and the plot. So we're going to first look at where the dragons in George's world came from. One in-world story from around Karth we can discard is that dragons came from the moon, which seems like pure mythology. Instead, we're looking for a more realistic, concrete explanation. While dragons are known to have been mastered by Valyrians thousands of years ago, helping them build up a formidable empire, there's evidence that dragons were around long before that. All the way back in 1999, George was asked this question. In the Hedge Knight, ancient dragons are mentioned, thousands of years old. Were there dragons in Westeros before the Targaryens brought them, or did the Targaryens bring the skeletons of old dragons with them? And George's answer was, there were dragons all over once. This short answer seems like an unambiguous statement from George that once upon a time, dragons were in abundance and that they roamed wild wherever they pleased. Although enough has transpired since 1999 for George to have changed his mind and refined his world-building and dragon lore, what he said there does seem to line up with the tidbits we get in the world book about ancient dragons. In the Rise of Valyria section, we get this. There were dragons in Westeros once, long before the Targaryens came, as our own legends and histories tell us. If dragons did first spring from the fourteen flames, they must have been spread across much of the known world before they were tamed. And in fact, there is evidence for this, as dragon bones have been found as far north as Ib and even in the jungles of Sothorios. In spite of claims from Septon Barth that the Valyrians might have actually created dragons, which we'll consider in a minute, Maester Vanyan says in his tome, Against the Unnatural, that there were, quote, certain proofs of dragons having existed in Westeros even in the earliest of days before Valyria rose to be a power. As ever, ancient history is murky in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's contradictory explanations about the origin of dragons, and George has pointed out that trying to comprehend ancient legends in his world is like us trying to understand Noah or Gilgamesh. There's always details lost to history in the retellings, and of course, Westeros doesn't have the scientific standards of proof that we have today. Yet even with our own advancements, we're still arguing about whether dinosaurs had feathers and so on. So Westerosi maesters really are up against it. But what we can do with the information about ancient dragons presented to us, bearing in mind that George is creating these mysteries to get our brains turning, is look for clues across the canon that might give us a better platform from which to draw conclusions. Maybe there's a way to make the contradictory pieces of evidence fit together. So, the first thing we should consider is how dragons might have evolved in the wild. Considering all of the creatures we're aware of in Planetos that actually seem to exist, there are two that are mentioned as being possibly related to dragons. Fireworms and wyverns. So let's start with fireworms. We first learn about the existence of fireworms when Arya is learning the history of the faceless men from the kindly man in A Feast for Crows, and he tells her about the awful conditions down in the mines of Old Valyria. Here's the passage. Shafts were cut so low that the slaves could not stand upright but had to crawl or bend, and there were worms in that red darkness too. Earthworms? she asked, frowning. 
fireworms. Some say they are akin to dragons, for worms breathe fire too. Instead of soaring through the sky, they bore through stone and soil. If the old tales can be believed, there were worms amongst the fourteen flames even before the dragons came. The young ones are no larger than that skinny arm of yours, but they can grow to monstrous size and have no love for men. Did they kill the slaves? Burnt and blackened corpses were oft found in shafts where the rocks were cracked or full of holes. Yet still the mines drove deeper. Slaves perished by the score, but their masters did not care. So this is a short passage, and it's all we really learn about fireworms, but this information is priceless. First off, the location of the fireworms is very interesting. They live and burrow around the 14 flames, the volcano range that Valeria was built around. Given that these volcanoes are noted numerous times in the world book as being the possible place of origin for dragons, with, quote, the Valerians themselves claiming that dragons sprang forth as the children of the 14 flames, we have our first strong correlation between fireworms and dragons. Next, there's the details that fireworms are said to be akin with dragons, that they breathe fire, and that they grow to monstrous sizes. The kindly man is describing the fireworms basically as dragons without wings. The concept of fireworms being wingless dragons that happen to live in the same location that dragons are rumored to originate from gets even more interesting when we consider that the other beast mentioned as being kin of dragons are wyverns. Here's what we know about wyverns from the world book from the section on Sothorios. Most terrible of all are the wyverns, those tyrants of the southern skies, with their great leathery wings, cruel beaks, and insatiable hunger. Close kin to dragons, wyverns cannot breathe fire, but they exceed their cousins in ferocity and are a match for them in all other respects, save size. Brindled wyverns, with their distinctive jade and white scales, grow up to 30 feet long. Swamp wyverns have been known to attain even greater size, though they are sluggish by nature and seldom fly far from their lairs. Brown bellies, no larger than monkeys, are even more dangerous than their larger kin, for they hunt in packs of a hundred or more. But most dreaded of all is the shadow wing, a nocturnal monster whose black scales and wings make him all but invisible, until he descends out of the darkness to tear apart his prey. So down in Sothorios, we have dragon-kin creatures that look and act like dragons. While they cannot breathe fire, they can fly. It doesn't take much of a leap to realise that if you cross fireworms who can't fly but can breathe fire with wyverns who can't breathe fire but can fly together, then you pretty much have a dragon. We think it's very possible that this is how dragons came into existence, the crossbreeding of fireworms and wyverns. Given George's comment that dragons were everywhere once, perhaps this might have happened either naturally or by forced breeding long before the Valerians were involved. One person who might agree that fireworm plus wyvern equals dragon is Septim Barth. In A Dance with Dragons, when contemplating the nature of dragons, Tyrion thinks, Barth had been a blacksmith's son who rose to be king's hand during the reign of Jaehaerys the Conciliator. His enemies always claimed he was more a sorcerer than Septon. Baylor the Blessed had ordered all Barth's writings destroyed when he came to the Iron Throne. 
One book written by Barth that Tyrion is desperate to get his hands on is called Dragons, Worms, and Wyverns, Their Unnatural History. However, Tyrion is less than hopeful that he might one day get to read it, given its scarcity, although he does recall reading a fragment ten years ago. But in the context of our discussion, the title alone, Dragons, Worms and Wyverns, Their Unnatural History, should give us pause for thought, and perhaps we don't need to read it all to understand what it's about. In Fire and Blood, we learn that Bath wrote Unnatural History after treating Princess Arya Targaryen following her return from Valyria, something we'll elaborate more upon later. It says... The horrors he had witnessed had a profound effect upon the Septon, however, exciting the very hunger for knowledge he called my own abiding sin. It was subsequent to this that Bath began the researches and investigations that would ultimately lead him to write Dragons, Worms and Wyverns, their unnatural history, a volume that the Citadel would condemn as provocative but unsound, and that Baelor the Blessed would order expunged and destroyed. From what we know of his tome, from details included in the world book, Septon Barth speculated that, quote, the blood mages of Valyria used wyvern stock to create dragons, though the blood mages were alleged to have experimented mightily with their unnatural arts, This claim is considered far-fetched by most maesters. So, while Barth might agree that, somehow at least, dragons can be traced to wyverns and fireworms, something he doesn't agree with us on is time frame. As we've highlighted, George himself talked about ancient dragons being everywhere, and in-universe, Maester Vanyan gives further evidence that they existed well before Valyria, Yet Barth seems to insist that Valyrians created or engineered them. Given that the Valyrian Empire came into existence some 5,000 years ago, Barth is definitely at odds with common thinking here. And to further complicate matters via the mists of time, there's another school of thought that purports dragons, in fact, first came from Ashai by the Shadow. Maester Yandel writes in the World Book, In Ashai, the tales are many and confused, but certain texts, all impossibly ancient, claim that dragons first came from the shadow, a place where all of our learning fails us. These Ashai histories say that a people so ancient they had no name first tamed dragons in the shadow and brought them to Valyria, teaching the Valyrians their arts before departing from the annals. Yandel then raises a good point when he asks why the men in the shadow, if they had tamed dragons first, didn't conquer as the Valyrians did. Altogether, we have three schools of thought that dragons either a. evolved naturally, probably as a result of fireworms and wyverns mating, and Valyrians found some of these in the Fourteen Flames, b. the Valyrians created dragons, probably by using fireworm and wyvern stock, perhaps with a touch of blood magic, or c. that dragons originally came from beyond a shy and were first tamed by an ancient people. Having various possibilities muddies the water and leaves us without a definitive answer on the origin of dragons, and we all know how much George loves to infuse his world with mysteries like this. Perhaps we'll never know the absolute truth, but of course we can speculate, and it's a lot of fun to engage with his world like this. 
Given George is a crafty old fox, one possibility is that he sprinkled an element of truth in the different schools of thoughts, and so maybe there's a way we can merge together these seemingly disparate ideas into one all-encompassing theory. Of course, we'd have to go well into speculation territory to do that, but as we said, it's fun to theorise, so allow us some creative freedom and let's give it a go. So, in trying to make the three schools of thought agree, we need to acknowledge that seemingly opposing theories could actually all be true at the same time. Perhaps dragons evolved naturally from the unions of fireworms and wyverns in a volcanic region, or were forespread by ancient peoples and dragons came into existence, roamed free, and flew all over the place from Ibn to Sothorios. But what if they began to die out? What if their population was naturally in decline or there was some event that killed them off? For example, what if they had an adverse reaction to the long night, which we know occurred well before the beginning of the Valyrian Empire? If dragon numbers were somehow dwindling or they'd become extinct, this would allow the possibility that ancient dragons roamed free well before Valyria and that the Valyrians later brought dragons back into existence. Maester Vanyan and Septembarth would both be correct in this scenario. As for the legend that the ancient Ashai people taught the Valyrians how to tame dragons, this could also be true. We know that Ashai has volcanic areas nearby due to the fact that they export dragonglass, so they might well have had fireworms around there. It's very southern, so there might have been wyverns not too far away, and whether by natural process of force breeding, dragons might have first come out of that area. We really know so little about that part of the world, but when Vanyan questions why the Ashai didn't harness the power of dragons, he's ignoring the possibility that in ancient times they did exactly that. The empty city of Ashai was once sprawling enough to encompass Carth, Volantis and King's Landing, and there are also other ancient civilizations in Essos. The idea that dragons were once harnessed in that part of the world is not out of the question. If so, ancient dragon law and wisdom might have been passed on through the ages, which was eventually given to the Valyrians. While this sort of theorizing sometimes feels like shooting in the dark, we do think there's ways, like the scenario we just outlined, that the disparate ideas about the origin of dragons could be bound together and unified. Whatever the case, the Proto-Valyrians are said to have been a tribe of humble shepherds before dragons entered the picture. In the main series, we meet a shepherding people called the Lazarene in Daenerys' chapters of A Game of Thrones. The Lazarene are depicted as a powerless race who want to lead a peaceful existence, but instead are routinely routed and brutalized by the aggressive Dothraki who attack them freely, killing the men and taking the women to be sold off as slaves. It's a bleak depiction of a simple lifestyle, a wandering race of shepherds who have no thick walls to hide behind and no method of effectively defending themselves. If we consider that life for the Proto-Valyrians in the time of the Giscari slave empire could very well have been every bit as brutal as it is now for the Lazarene, meaning they might have been prime targets for the slave trade too, we can imagine how drastically things changed for them when they acquired dragons. 
They suddenly found themselves moving from the most powerless to the most powerful people at Essos in a relatively short amount of time. Maybe the Valyrian Peninsula had some good grazing spots, or maybe along the volcanic coast was the best place they could find to hide from oppression, given they're noted as sheltering there. We don't know for sure what brought a race of shepherds into volcano territory, but there was certainly a boon hidden in this probably inhospitable environment. They either found dragons there or found fireworms and learned how to create dragons. Either way, neither dragons nor fireworms could have existed in many other places because, as Yandel puts it, the Valyrians harnessed and subjugated dragons as no one else could. So the shepherds were ultimately able to hold a monopoly on dragons because of an advantage in location or know-how or both. Whether or not they really did meet descendants of an ancient Ashai people who helped them learn the ways of dragons is anyone's guess, but it's a strange detail for George to include if there's absolutely no basis, and it's fun to imagine how this scenario might have transpired. The Valyrians had the prime fireworm slash dragon real estate, and the Ashai had the know-how. Perhaps they agreed to team up, but the Valyrians embrace dragon power and betray their allies after rinsing them for their dragon knowledge. Or perhaps, given the aggressive Giscari Empire might have been a common enemy, the Valyrians and the Ashai might have actually worked together. The Valyrians became the dragon riders and the Ashai became their mages, and together they formed a freehold revolving around the magical subjugation of volcanoes and dragons that made old geese tremble. George said in his interview with our friends at History of Westeros that aside from the dragon lords, there was, quote, another powerful group in Valyria who were not necessarily the dragon riders, and those people practiced blood magic. Given there's also hints that Valyria itself, situated among the Fourteen Flames, was held together by its mages who protected the city from volcanic eruptions, we wonder if these mages might have been those Ashai. With the many references to blood magic in Targaryen lore, and the fact that they began as simple shepherds, what's clear is that someone must have taught them all of this magic— it makes sense to us that expertise traveled from Ashai, a part of the world notorious for its mysterious culture of magic and the dark arts. And by all accounts, Valyrian expertise did at some point shift from sheep tending to blood magic, which is quite an arc, so let's consider the blood magic aspect of their culture for a moment, because it goes hand in hand with their dragon culture. As we mentioned, George says that there were blood mages who were an important part of Valyrian society. In an episode of House of the Dragon, there's mention of a place called the Anogrion in Valyria where blood mages worked their craft. And although show canon is certainly not book canon, we do wonder if this detail is from George himself. Fantasy linguist David J. Peterson, who does work directly with George to develop the Dothraki, Valyrian and other languages, and is therefore privy to world-building information, says that the word anogrion means temple and is linked to the word for blood. We find it very interesting that blood magic and religion are so inextricably linked in Valyrian society. 
Peterson added that anogreon is an old word related to even older practices, and you have to consider what these ancient practices were and how blood magic connects to dragons in Valyria. Yeah, if Valyrians are connected to blood magic and Valyrians are also connected to dragons, how does blood magic connect to dragons? With such an emphasis on fire and blood magic in Valyrian culture, we would find it hard to believe that they had not been experimenting with dragon's blood too. We know little of the precise nature of Valyrian magic, so we do have to use our imagination and attempt to fill in the blanks ourselves. However, the one Valyrian magical process we do know a small bit about does involve dragons. Valyrian steel is a fantasy form of Damascus steel that was used primarily to forge blades that were stronger, lighter and sharper than other metals. While the finer details of the forging of Valyrian steel remains a mystery, it does seem that dragons were employed. In Daenerys 10 of A Game of Thrones, Danny tells Jorah that One day you shall have from my hands a longsword like none the world has ever seen, dragon-forged and made of Valyrian steel. And at Bubonicon in 2013, George himself said that Aegon the Conqueror was cremated on the pyre along with Blackfire. Aenys retrieved the blade from the ashes, unharmed of course, having been forged with dragonfire. Given that this process sounds more like fire magic than blood magic, as does the purported ability of their mages to control the 14 flames, this still leaves question marks over what they were doing with their blood mages. As Marwyn the mage says to Samwell in A Feast for Crows when sat round a magical Valyrian glass candle that he lit with bloody hands, all Valyrian sorcery was rooted in blood or fire. And there's evidence of much darker blood magic being practiced within the Valyrian Empire. In the Third Giscari War, the Valyrians captured the Basilisk Isles, and on the southern coast was a ruined city they called Gagossus. Maester Yandel says, It was an evil place. The dragon lords sent their worst criminals to the Isle of Tears to live out their lives at hard labour. In the dungeons of Gorgossus, torturers devised new torments. In the flesh pits, blood sorcery of the darkest sort was practiced, as beasts were mated to slave women to bring forth twisted half-human children. The infamy of Gorgossus outlived even the doom. So, from this horrific description, it seems Valyrians were crossbreeding different species and using powerful blood magic in the process. This does seem to fit with the notion we brought up earlier that they might have crossed fireworms and wyverns to create dragons, and to give you an example of how this might have been done, maybe they captured a fireworm around the 14 flames and the Ashai brought them a wyvern's egg to hatch from somewhere down south, and they successfully crossed the species via mating and blood magic. But there's also the possibility that they were experimenting with dragons and humans and trying to mix their blood as well. Given what was going on in Gorgossus, this hardly seems out of the question. And although mating humans and dragons might be pushing the notion too far, 
they could have at some stage been trying to put a drop of dragon's blood into human bloodstreams as a way to bond themselves with the fire-breathing beasts they were seeking to control. The Targaryen words are fire and blood, and there are half a hundred references to blood of the dragon and a drop of dragon's blood in the text. So could this theme be more literal than simple sigil symbolism? We are in a fantasy story after all, and bathing in dragon's blood and attempting to imbue its power is a fantasy trope as old as time. In the German epic fantasy poem, The Song of the Nibelungs, written all the way back in the 1200s and represented pictorially in runestones hundreds of years before that, heroic character Sigurd kills the dragon Fafnir and then bathes in its blood to change his skin so that he could not be wounded anymore. These types of legends have endured for centuries and we're sure George would be well aware of them. In-universe, Valyrians have a close association with dragons and seem to have mastered them and built an empire around their power. We know that Targaryens have magical and prophetic dragon dreams that seem to be innate, the existence of which have never been explained. We should be questioning why Targaryens have them. Daenys the Dreamer's dragon dreams were so accurate that she was able to save her family from the Cataclysm of the Doom, And so the entire history of Westeros was shaped by prophetic Targaryen dreams. Where do they come from? Why is there magic innate in Targaryens that's left unexplained? Then there are the strange Targaryen babies. In Game of Thrones, Daenerys gives birth to Rhaego, who dies in the process. Miri Mazdur describes the baby like this, twisted, I drew him forth myself. He was scaled like a lizard, blind with the stub of a tail and small leather wings like the wings of a bat. Many readers had assumed this was either a result of Miri's magic or Miri exaggerating to rub salt in Danny's wounds until we learned about other Targaryen babies with similar dragon-esque deformities. When the historical novella The Princess and the Queen was released in 2013, Readers were shocked to learn of the similarities between Rhaegal and Daemon and Rhaenyra's stillborn daughter, Visenya. Here's the description. When the babe at last came forth, she proved indeed a monster, a stillborn girl, twisted and malformed, with a hole in her chest where her heart should have been, and a stubby, scaled tail. And Damon and Lena Valerian also had a stillborn son, noted to be twisted and malformed, and of course we get similar descriptions from the results of Valerian breeding experiments and blood magic as previously outlined. Finally, there's a theme of Targaryens practicing intermarriage and incest. Some readers had assumed that this was down to Targaryen narcissism. While they do often view themselves as above others and even as demigods sometimes, there are comments from George that confirm this wasn't the reason why they chose to keep inbreeding. In an interview with 92Y in 2014, George said this, Targaryens were interlopers from another culture and they had some unique factors that didn't necessarily fit into the mainstream of the other Westerosi lords, such as their traditional incest, which was part of keeping the bloodline pure so they could better control the dragons. 
And getting back to his responses to History of Westeros about Valyrians, we can control dragons. We don't want to lose that ability. Not everybody can do that. So we better keep it in the family, so to speak, or at least with the other dragon-riding families. So given these two quotes were offered by George himself, with no maester's conceit or unreliable narrator in sight, it seems to be confirmed that Valyrian blood does have some sort of magical quality that enables them to control dragons. Considering the long history of humans using dragon's blood in fantasy stories, the Valyrian penchant for blood magic and weird experiments, the unexplained, magically prophetic Targaryen dreams, the curious dragon-esque babies, and the tradition of incest that was practiced in order to control the dragons, the case that there's a literal drop of dragon's blood in the Targaryen bloodstream is very strong. How the Valyrians might have done this is a mystery, and it might always be a mystery, but certainly, rather than bathing in the blood like the old legends, they were using blood magic, and so it's not too difficult to imagine some dark rite occurring where blood was somehow transferred in a primitive sort of blood transfusion. As a result, the Valyrians were able to better control the dragons, and we'll get into the relationship between Valyrian blood and dragon riding later on, but we know, quote, the Valyrians harnessed and subjugated dragons as no one else could. But certainly having a drop of magic in their blood doesn't make them better than anyone else. They simply have access to power that others don't, yet that advantage is wholly dependent on the existence of dragons. Following the demise of dragons, Targaryens are soon proven to be as human and vulnerable as everyone else, and Robert Baratheon realised quickly that he could overthrow their dynasty with the raw power of his warhammer. Still, the notion of magical bloodlines doesn't sit well with some readers, but this is fantasy, and this is a story that already presents a cast of characters benefiting from the magic in their blood— when Jon Snow wargs ghost, in fact, all six Stark kids are confirmed to be wargs, or when Jojen Reed green dreams, or when Bran begins to see through the weirwood net, it's very likely that this is all due to a magical bloodline circulating in the north. We'll look at this in an upcoming episode about green sight and wargs, but it seems to us that in simple terms, this magical blood went from the Children of the Forest to the Krannic Men to the Starks. If true, this could be a parallel to Targaryens and their bloodline. There's the prophetic dreams and the magical connection with beasts. Whatever the case, one way or another, Valyrians mastered dragon riding, and with that formidable power at their disposal, turned from shepherds to conquerors. They built a freehold that first matched and then overmatched the Giscari Empire. The final time the Valyrians marched on Old Gis, they raised the city to announce themselves as the dominant force in Essos. The Valyrian freehold stood for some 5,000 years, and at its heart was Old Valyria, a Rome-esque city where two score houses contested for power, although it should be noted that House Targaryen were not among the most powerful. The artwork of Valyria in the World Book depicts opulent spiralling towers, rivers of lava, and many dragons circling above the city. 
Valeria is a true work of fantasy, a place we can imagine in our mind's eye, even though it was destroyed around 400 years before the start of the story. Of course, Valeria was destroyed when the doom struck, and while the hows and whys of this catastrophic event are beyond our scope today, the result was the death of many Valerians and many dragons. As Yandel puts it, the time of the dragons in Essos was at an end. Because of Daenys the Dreamer's dragon dreams, though, the Targaryens did escape the Inferno 12 years before it occurred with five dragons, and it wasn't long before they turned their gaze towards Westeros. Someday the dragons will return. My brother Daron's dreamed of it, and King Aerys read it in a prophecy. Maybe it will be my egg that hatches. That would be splendid. When George decided to include dragons in his fantasy story, he had to consider not only their role in the story, but what they were going to look like, how they were going to behave, how they bred, and so on. Given there were no real dragons to base them on, George had to look to other fantasy stories to help define what he did and didn't want his dragons to be. One of George's biggest fantasy influences is J.R.R. Tolkien, who in his famous 1938 novel The Hobbit included a talking dragon named Smorg. On this occasion, George decided not to follow in the path of his idol and present dragons of this level of intelligence. He told fans at a New York Comic Con that... Although A Song of Ice and Fire dragons are intelligent, they cannot speak and will never evolve into the sort of dragons we see in Tolkien or Le Guin. Drogon is never going to share witty aphorisms with Danny. The Targaryens rule by fire and blood, and that is what the dragons represent in the story. So, if George was looking away from Tolkien and Le Guin in search of a more primal sort of dragon, where was he looking? Of course, as we outlined earlier, there's no end of dragon lore and culture and storytelling, but there is one dragon in particular that seemed to have caught George's eye. In the 1981 fantasy adventure movie Dragon Slayer, the post-Roman kingdom of Erland is tormented by an antagonist dragon called Vermithrax Pejorative. Varmithrax is 400 years old, and a lot of effort was poured into making the dragon sequences as stunning as possible. George was evidently impressed, and in a comment on his blog in 2016, named Vermithrax Pejorative as the best dragon ever seen on TV. One of the crucial elements of Vermithrax's design that seems to have influenced George is the fact there's only four limbs on the dragon, with the front two being wings. This design stands in contrast with many well-known dragons such as the one on the Welsh flag, but George prefers his dragons this way. He said this in 2007, My dragons have no front limbs, just rear legs and wings. Although the traditional depiction of dragons as six-limbed creatures has become a staple of fantasy, the fact that no animal in nature has ever evolved in such a way always bothered me. And he added on his blog that four legs looks absurd. The front legs should be wings, as in bats and pterosaurs. 
With the basic shape of the dragon settled, George added more details, like scales that are fireproof and harden with age to provide a greater layer of defense to the internal musculature and horns to make the dragons look more ferocious. When they're first born, dragons obviously start off small, and there's a great early description in the first Daenerys chapter of A Clash of Kings. The dragons were no larger than the scrawny cats she had once seen skulking along the walls of Magister Illyrio's estate in Pentos, until they unfolded their wings. Their span was three times their length, each wing a delicate fan of translucent skin, gorgeously colored, stretched taut between long, thin bones. When you looked hard, you could see that most of their body was neck, tail, and wing. However, dragons don't stay small for long, and as the strangely familiar Arstan Whitebeard tells Danny in A Storm of Swords, Valerian the Black Dread was 200 years old when he died during the reign of Jaehaerys the Conciliator. He was so large he could swallow an aurochs whole. A dragon never stops growing, your grace, so long as he has food and freedom. So... A well-fed dragon that's not spent its life locked up in a dark pit will grow and grow, and Beleriand is the best case study on this subject, being the only dragon we have a good record of that lived on and didn't die in battle but of natural causes. As we heard in that quote, Barristan says he was around 200 years old when he died, and although Beleriand alone makes for a minute sample size, it's interesting to know their approximate lifespan. Surely in the wild, or even in old Valyria where there was more expertise, dragons might have lived on even longer. Regardless, Given we know from A Dance with Dragons that in under two years, quote, Drogon had grown so large that his wings stretched 20 feet from tip to tip, we can see how much power just one dragon can offer. Aegon the Conqueror changed the course of Westeros with Beleriand in a relatively short time, so a lot could be achieved in just the lifespan of a single dragon. One point to note, though, is that a certain age and size, dragons find it difficult to take off, fly, and land. In Fire and Blood, we learn that by the time Prince Viserys mounts Beleriand in 93 AC, when the dragon was nearing the end of his life, that the old dragon had stopped growing at last, but he was sluggish and hard to rouse, and he struggled when Viserys urged him into the air. The young prince flew thrice around the city before landing again. He had intended to fly to Dragonstone, he told his father afterward, but he did not think the Black Dread had the strength. Less than a year later, Beleriand was gone. Despite fading in the twilight of their lives, dragons are military game-changers, formidable creatures, invaluable in situations of war. Given there's no gunpowder in this foam medieval setting, they are a superweapon. They fly swiftly in the air, making them difficult to aim at. They are armoured in scales, and they have powerful jaws. They also have sharp claws, long horns, and a tail like a giant whip. And as if all of this wasn't enough, they also breathe fire at will. When Samwell discusses Marwyn's glass candle in A Feast for Crows, he asks the mage, what feeds the candle's flame? Marwyn answers with a question of his own, what feeds a dragon's fire? 
Of course, the answer is simply magic. Dragons are magical creatures that can conjure fire from their gullets in seemingly unlimited amounts. The older a dragon gets, the hotter its flame. And you only have to look at the walls of Harrenhal to see exactly how hot we're talking. Aegon the Conqueror attacked Harrenhal some 300 years before the main story, and here's the description of the ruined castle from an Arya chapter. Harrenhal's gatehouse, itself as large as Winterfell's great keep, was as scarred as it was massive, its stones fissured and discolored. From outside, only the tops of five immense towers could be seen beyond the walls. The shortest of them was half again as tall as the highest tower in Winterfell, but they did not soar the way a proper tower did. Arya thought they looked like some old man's gnarled, knuckly fingers groping after a passing cloud. She remembered Nan telling how the stone had melted and flowed like candle wax down the steps and in the windows, glowing a sullen, searing red as it sought out Harren where he hid. Arya could believe every word. Each tower was more grotesque and misshapen than the last, lumpy and runnelled and cracked. So the breath of a mature dragon is hot enough to melt stone and steel, and we learn via Cersei that it's hotter even than wildfire. In the world book, Maester Yandel claims that Valyrians use dragonfire to shape buildings and roads. He says... The dragon lords of Valyria, as is well known, possessed the art of turning stone to liquid with dragon flame, shaping it as they would, then fusing it harder than iron, steel, or granite. We also know that Valyrians harness dragon flame to make Valyrian steel, as we mentioned, and so altogether we can see that this is no ordinary fire. Speaking of the fiery wonder of dragons, the mysterious Quaith tells Danny that dragons are fire-made flesh and fire is power. In the prologue of A Game of Thrones, we're introduced to the Others, a race of elegant swordsmen who carry the cold with them and have a strange mastery over ice. It's clear that dragons are meant to be the fiery parallel to the icy Others, and both are undoubtedly magical beings. Dragons are a manifestation of fire, and as such, they're warm and have hot blood. When Drogon is stabbed with a spear in Daznak's pit, Danny sees smoke rising from the wound. Being fire-made flesh, dragons seem impervious to fire itself, although there are question marks around their eyes as weak spots, given Sunfire blinds Moondancer with flame during the Dance of the Dragons, though we don't know how severe that blinding was, because Moondancer dies shortly afterwards. Altogether, killing a fully grown dragon out in the open is a near impossible task unless you yourself have a dragon. Numerous dragons were killed in the storming of the dragon pit, but that was within the confines of a building. The only dragon we know of that we can be sure was killed by a human in the open is Meraxes, although the circumstances of Vermax's death are uncertain and there's also the legend of Serwin of the Mirror Shield. Anyway, here's what it says in the world book about the death of Meraxes. It was at Hellholt where the Dornish had their greatest success against the Targaryens. A bolt from a scorpion pierced the eye of Meraxes and the great dragon and the queen who rode upon it fell from the sky. In her death throes, the dragon destroyed the castle's highest tower and part of the curtain wall. 
Queen Rhaenys's body was never returned to King's Landing. Perhaps predictably, Meraxi's vulnerable spot was the eye, which lines up with the legend of Serwyn of the Mirror Shield, who is said to have killed Urax by stabbing his sword through its eye. Other than the eyes, it seems difficult to slay dragons. As Daemon Targaryen said in the Black Council at the start of the Dance of the Dragons, it is no easy thing to be a dragon slayer. But dragons can kill dragons and have. Any maester who's ever studied the history of Valyria can tell you that. And when dragons do die, they leave behind strong black bones that, as we said earlier, have been found from Ib to Sothorios. Dragonbone is mentioned as early as the first Danny chapter in A Game of Thrones when she notes that Illyrio deals in them. Then Tyrion borrows a book on dragons from the Winterfell Library and begins to read it on his way to the Wall. It says, Tyrion curled up in his fur with his back against the trunk, took a sip of wine and began to read about the properties of Dragonbone. Dragonbone is black because of its high iron content, the book told him. It is strong as steel, yet lighter and far more flexible, and of course utterly impervious to fire. Dragonbone bows are greatly prized by the Dothraki and small wonder. An archer so armed can outrange any wooden bow. Tyrion had a morbid fascination with dragons. Tyrion certainly does seem fascinated with dragons, and although this obsession already had a plot purpose, given he later headed to Daenerys hoping to become her dragon advisor, some fans wonder if this is all set up for him one day riding a dragon. Although Tyrion's story is beyond our scope today, what is pertinent is the question about dragon riding and who is able to do it. Fans have debated for years and years whether only certain people have the ability to ride dragons and whether anyone could do it if they were physically able and had the know-how. The theory goes that only certain characters with blood from a certain Valyrian bloodline, namely the Targaryen bloodline, can mount dragons. One thing is for sure here, George has cultivated this to be a mystery on purpose and would probably be thrilled that dragon-related issues like this are so often discussed in A Song of Ice and Fire analysis. We want to examine how George has fed both sides of the debate. We'll get to George's comments on the matter soon, and some of them we've already been through in the previous segment, but first let's look at the text. We know there were many dragon riders in Valyria and that there was definitely strange blood magic being practiced at the heart of that society. The doom wiped out the city and George has confirmed that, quote, the Targaryens were the only nobles with dragons who escaped the destruction of Valyria. After heading west, the Targaryens conquered Westeros with dragons and then continued to ride them for generations. In the time before we get to the Dance of the Dragons, Nobody without Targaryen blood had ridden a dragon in Westeros, but on the flip side, nobody else had been allowed to. The Targaryens had, though, been continuing their practice of intermarriage and incest to keep their bloodlines pure wherever possible. But during the Dance of the Dragons, there's an excess of dragons and a shortage of riders. In 2013, George released the novella The Princess and the Queen, where we first learned of the word dragon seeds. Dragon seeds 
other illegitimate children of Targaryens and their descendants that existed mainly on Dragonstone. The number of seeds on Dragonstone is linked to the grotesque custom of the Lord's Right to the First Night. In the novella, we get this passage. Though this custom was greatly resented elsewhere in the Seven Kingdoms by men of a jealous temperament who did not grasp the honour being conferred upon them, such feelings were muted upon Dragonstone, where Targaryens were rightly regarded as being closer to gods than the common run of men. Here brides thus blessed upon their wedding night were envied, and the children born of such unions were esteemed above all others, for the lords of Dragonstone oft celebrated the birth of such with lavish gifts of gold and silk and land to the mother. These happy bastards were said to have been born of dragon seed, and in time became known simply as seeds. Even after the end of the rite of the first night, certain Targaryens continued to dally with the daughters of innkeeps and the wives of fishermen, so seeds and the sons of seeds were plentiful on Dragonstone. So, on Dragonstone, there are many small folk with Targaryen blood in their veins. So many, in fact, that without the ability to do modern-day DNA tests, it becomes difficult to say who does and doesn't have it. It's a whole island of people who might be blood-related to Targaryens. And Rhaenyra's blacks, desperate for more firepower, ultimately looked to Dragonstone for more riders. It says, Prince Jaceris needed more dragon riders and more dragons, and it was to those born of dragon seed that he turned, vowing that any man who could master a dragon would be granted lands and riches and dubbed a knight. His sons would be ennobled, his daughters wed to lords, and he himself would have the honor of fighting beside the Prince of Dragonstone against the pretender Aegon II Targaryen and his treasonous supporters. And so, over the course of the war, we see four so-called dragon seeds riding dragons. I use the word so-called because, as proof of George's efforts to cultivate the question of Valyrian blood for dragon riders, we can't be sure if all of these characters are descended from Targaryens or not. If they're not directly related to Targaryens, then who's to say they don't have a drop of Targaryen blood from a more indirect path of lineage? This is a small island community after all. So, Jaceris invited the seeds to try and mount the riderless dragons, some of which were wild, in an event that became known as the Sowing of the Seeds. Perhaps unsurprisingly, many people died in their attempts. We get this from the novella. Dragons are not horses. They do not easily accept men upon their backs, and when angered or threatened, they attack. Sixteen men lost their lives during an attempt to become dragon riders. Three times that number were burned or maimed. Stefan Darklin was burned to death whilst attempting to mount the dragon sea smoke. Lord Gorman Massey suffered the same fate when approaching Vermithor. A man called Silver Dennis, whose hair and eyes led credence to his claim to be a bastard son of King Magor the Cruel, had an arm torn off by Sheepstealer. As his sons struggled to staunch the wound, the cannibal descended on them, drove off Sheepstealer, and devoured father and sons alike. But in spite of the casualties, there were people who eventually bonded with and rode dragons. 
having already once been ridden, the Targaryen castle dragons Vermithor, Silverwing and Sea Smoke were easier to tame than the wild ones. Vermithor, King Jaehaerys's former mount, quote, bent his neck to a blacksmith's bastard, a towering man called Hugh the Hammer. Silverwing, who once belonged to Queen Alysanne, was claimed by a pale-haired man-at-arms named Ulf the White for his hair. And Lainor Valerian Seasmoke went to a 15-year-old boy named Adam of Hull, who had Valerian looks but whose lineage is still disputed. Fire and Blood suggests he was either the son of Lainor Valerian or his father Corlys. In none of these cases can we say for sure whether the riders had Valyrian blood or if that blood aided the bonding with the dragons. The final seed to ride a dragon, though, is a really interesting case in this discussion. The dragon in question is one of the three wild ones living on Dragonstone, called Sheepstealer. In the novella, we get this. Dragonstone's three wild dragons were less easily claimed than those that had known previous riders, yet attempts were made upon them all the same. Sheepstealer, a notably ugly, mud-brown dragon, hatched when the old king was still young, had a taste for mutton, swooping down on shepherds' flocks from Driftmark to the Wendwater. Sheepstealer is noted to have caused more casualties in the sowing than the three castle dragons combined, and so the blacks must have been wondering how they would ever find a dragon rider for any of the wild dragons. However, enter into the story a girl called Nettles. In the end, the brown dragon was brought to heel by the cunning and persistence of a small brown girl of six and ten named Nettie, who delivered him a freshly slaughtered sheep every morning until Sheep Stealer learned to accept and expect her. She was black-haired, brown-eyed, brown-skinned, skinny, foul-mouthed, filthy and fearless, and the first and last rider of the dragon sheep stealer. So here, Nettles gained an advantage in the quest to mount an aggressive wild dragon by using her intelligence and feeding a dragon known for eating sheep exactly what he wanted. No doubt the sheep and the gradual familiarity helped to disarm sheep stealer, and when this novella came out, some readers were wondering if this proved dragon riders was less about blood and more about technique. But this isn't necessarily the case. While technique definitely helped here, nobody knows about Nettie's blood beyond Mushroom saying that she's the bastard of a sex worker. She's from Dragonstone, and therefore there's every chance she's a seed with Targaryen blood of some sort, and there's even a suggestion in Fire and Blood that she could be Daemon Targaryen's daughter. Like every other example, we simply don't know, and it feels very much like George stirring the pot in this discussion. He's saying, here's a dragon rider using her intelligence to mount a dragon, but I'm also going to make it very possible that she's a seed. Since 2014, though, George has made pertinent comments that we covered in the earlier segment. In separate interviews, he confirmed that Valyrians intermarried and practiced incest in order to control their dragons, and that they kept their bloodlines pure with other dragon-riding families because they didn't want to lose their ability to ride dragons, and not everybody had that ability. For all the Targaryen bluster and narcissism about being demigods, it does seem there's something in their blood 
that at the very least makes dragon riding easier, and we hope we laid a lot of that out earlier. Whether this all means only people with Targaryen blood can ride dragons, we'll leave for you to decide, but there might be more wiggle room given we see a supposed dragon binding horn in A Feast for Crows, although we don't really know much about it at this stage. All I know of dragons is what my brother told me when I was a girl and some I read in books. But it is said that even Aegon the Conqueror never dared Mount Vagar or Meraxes, nor did his sisters Mount Beleriand the Black Dread. Dragons live longer than men, some for hundreds of years, so Beleriand had other riders after Aegon died. But no rider ever flew two dragons. Beyond whether or not you need certain blood to ride dragons, there are other interesting aspects to consider. Whereas one dragon can have several riders in succession, no one person has ever ridden more than one dragon to our knowledge. And add to that, no one's ever ridden a dragon while the previous owner still lives. Perhaps Joffrey Valarion found out that neither of these things is possible when, as the rider of Taraxes, he attempted to mount his mother Rhaenyra's dragon Cyrax. In Fire and Blood it says, Once in the air, Cyrax twisted beneath Joffrey, fighting to be free from his unfamiliar rider. Two hundred feet above Flea Bottom, Joffrey slid from the dragon's back and plunged to earth. We can't say for sure if one person can only ride one dragon in their lifetime, because although both Rhaenyra and Aegon II, whose dragons died during the dance, showed a strong interest in hatching new eggs, nobody has actually ever ridden two dragons. We also can't say if someone can only ride a dragon if the dragon's current rider is dead, but certainly interesting to think about how deep the connection with dragons really goes if either were true. In the latter case, it would mean that a dragon can sense when their rider dies, which would speak to a wonderful and magical connection between dragon and rider. It is noted that when Helena Targaryen impaled herself and dies, that, quote, at the moment of her death across the city atop the hill of Rhaenys, her dragon dreamfire rose suddenly with a roar that shook the dragon pit, snapping two of the chains that bound her. Yes, Septon Bath wrote that it may well be that dragons somehow sense and echo the moods of their riders. There seems to be further evidence to support this notion. For example, when there's initial friction between Alicent and Rhaenyra's parties in the build-up of the Dance of the Dragons, their dragons begin to dislike each other. Archmaester Gildane wrote, The feasts and tourneys continued as before and peace prevailed throughout the realm, though there were some sharp-eyed who observed the dragons of one party snapping and spitting flame at the dragons of the other party whenever they chanced to pass near each other. And then later into the story, in a scuffle after Aemon Targaryen mounts Vagar, Lucerys Valerian puts out Aemon's right eye. It says, By the time the stable boys finally arrived to pull apart the combatants, the prince was writhing on the ground, howling in pain, and Vagar was roaring as well. So could this be Vagar sensing her rider's pain? It certainly seems that the bond between dragon and rider is somehow telepathic, and given what we see in the Stark's point of views, bonding with their direwolves, it makes this fantasy world even more intriguing and mysterious. 
And talking of mysteries, another aspect of dragons that we can't be sure of is their reproduction. There are debates in universe as to how to define the sex of a dragon. Archmaester Gildane believes a dragon that lays eggs is female and one that doesn't is male. However, in A Feast for Crows, Maester Aemon agrees with Septon Bath's belief that, quote, dragons are neither male nor female, now one and now the other, as changeable as flame. Then in the World Book, it says that Maester Anson believes that Barth's comment has been misunderstood due to, quote, an esoteric metaphor that Barth preferred when discussing the higher mysteries, and therefore the belief that dragons could change sex at need is erroneous. If it feels like we're being led around in circles, then that's probably exactly what George wants. The takeaway is that in-universe, this aspect of dragons is still hotly debated among Westerosi intellectuals. Given that in the real world, animals like the Komodo dragons can reproduce asexually by a process called parthenogenesis, we can't even be sure if dragons need a mate to fertilize their eggs. However, in Fire and Blood, there's an interesting passage where we learn first that two dragons flew together, and then that one produced eggs, all in the same sentence, perhaps insinuating that the dragons had mated. It says, Damon and Lena oft visited with the princess, and her with them. Many a time they flew together on their dragons, and the princess's she-dragon Cyrax produced several clutches of eggs. Without knowing the exact nature of dragon reproduction, let's focus on the eggs. Dragons lay their eggs in small clutches. The colour of the eggs seems to correlate with the dragon that emerges if Danny's three eggs and dragons are anything to go by. Eager to start the bonding process early, Targaryens have a tradition of gifting cradle eggs to newborn members of the family. Receiving a cradle egg is no guarantee, though, of hatching a dragon, as the hatching process is yet another dragon mystery. We know that Targaryens had hatcheries on Dragonstone because we're told in The Princess and the Queen that the wild dragon cannibal used to, quote, descend upon the hatcheries of Dragonstone to gorge himself on newborn hatchlings and eggs. Even with this level of expertise, though, producing an actual dragon from an egg seems hit or miss, and there are various accounts of Targaryens trying in vain to hatch eggs. In the main series, known dragons have been extinct for almost 150 years, the Targaryens have been overthrown, and key knowledge pertaining to dragons has been lost. Daenerys is gifted three stone dragon's eggs by Illyrio Mopatis as a wedding gift, so we know that it's said that eggs that don't hatch eventually turn to stone. Without the benefit of access to dragon-related knowledge, Danny's experience with the dragon's eggs that she eventually hatches is more instinctive. She has a strange relationship with the eggs from the start, they feel hot to her, and she sometimes dreams of dragons. She also seems to feel stronger when they're close by, as we see in her fourth chapter. Danny curled up on her side, pulling the sand silk cloak across her and cradling the egg in the hollow between her swollen belly and small tender breasts. She liked to hold them. They were so beautiful, and sometimes just being close to them made her feel stronger, 
braver, as if somehow she were drawing strength from the stone dragons locked inside. When she eventually puts them into Drogo's funeral pyre before walking into the flames, she's using her instincts to hatch the dragons in what George has described as a one-off miracle. At the very end of A Game of Thrones, we get this classic line that seems to slip into omniscient narration. As Daenerys Targaryen rose to her feet, her black hissed, pale smoke venting from its mouth and nostrils. The other two pulled away from her breasts and added their voices to the call, translucent wings unfolding and stirring the air, and for the first time in hundreds of years, the night came alive with the music of dragons. Given the reports of here-be-dragons at the fringes of the known world are probably untrue, which is supported by the fact that the strength of magic seems to increase in the world after Daenerys' dragons hatch, it seems that Danny has brought dragons back from extinction. Despite not originally planning to include them in the story, George has made dragons central to his world. Not only are they linked to the general strength of magic evidenced by Helene's reaction to the wildfire spells suddenly working more efficiently, you don't suppose there are any dragons about, do you? But they are also linked to the seasons. In The Hedge Knight, we learn that the summers have been shorter since the last dragon died and the winters longer and crueler. In linking dragons to the seasons, George made them a part of his world-building, not just monsters in the story serving as antagonists for a hero to slay. By designing his dragons so thoroughly that they feel almost real to many of us, by using his own original ideas to avoid tired fantasy cliches, and by imbuing the history, mythology, and lore of dragons with just the right amount of mystery, George has offered us a fantasy species that is at once believable, exciting, and intriguing. He clearly gave a lot of thought to his dragons, and now it's difficult to imagine his world without them. And now that we've talked about the origins and characteristics of dragons in A Song of Ice and Fire, let's take a look at the dragons themselves. From Eurax to Balerion, from Sunfire to Drogon, the next section will be all about the dragons we encounter across the canon of A Song of Ice and Fire and its auxiliary material. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons, and now, at the midpoint of the episode, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks to Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Aka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, JM, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, the Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There were more dragons than ever before as well, and several of the she-dragons were regularly producing clutches of eggs. Not all of these eggs hatched, but many did, and it became customary for the fathers and mothers of newborn princelings to place a dragon's egg in their cradles, following a tradition that Princess Reina had begun many years before. The children so blessed invariably bonded with the hatchlings to become dragon riders. As we've said, George once stated that there were dragons all over once, and in the world book there's evidence of dragons in Ib, Yiti, and Sothorios, not to mention ancient stories of dragons from places as diverse as Westeros, Ashai, and Karth. In Yi-Ti, one of their fabled god-emperors, the yellow emperor Chai Duk, is said to have married a Valyrian noblewoman who brought a dragon to his court, while in Karth, dragons are important enough to warrant their own legendary origin story, one that is also a prophecy. Dragons came from the moon. Once there were two moons in the sky. But one wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand thousand dragons poured forth and drank the fire of the sun. That is why dragons breathe flame. One day the other moon will kiss the sun too, and then it will crack and the dragons will return. And Westeros has its own legendary dragons. The quite Arthurian-sounding Sir Galadon of Morn, who was beloved of the Maiden, had a magic sword called the Just Maid which he used only three times in his life, including once to slay a dragon. On the other hand, according to Nimble Dick Crab, one of the heroes of Cracklaw Point, known as Crackbones, was able to defeat a dragon with his bare hands. Crackbones fought a dragon too, but he didn't need no magic sword. He just tied its neck in a knot, so every time it breathed fire, it roasted its own arse. There were legendary dragons in the Reach, notably at Battle Isle at the mouth of the River Honeywine. These dragons were apparently slain or otherwise vanquished by the first Hightowers, settlers who arrived in Westeros thousands of years ago, possibly even predating the first men. 
Davos the Dragonslayer was also from the Reach, as was Sirwin of the Mirror Shield, who we mentioned earlier. Sirwin lived during the Age of Heroes and, in a move that seems inspired by the Greek myth of Perseus and Medusa, used a polished shield to fool the dragon Eurax into not noticing his approach so that he could get close enough to thrust a spear into the beast's eye. Even the North and the Iron Islands have their dragon legends. The Ironborn speak of Naga, a sea dragon who fed on krakens and leviathans and was the bane of islands. The legendary Grey King, with the help of the drowned god, was able to slay her on Old Wick, where he built his hall among her bones, using her jaw and teeth for his throne and crown, and her inner fire as a source of heat. The storm god drowned her flame after the Grey King died, and all that remains are her fossilised bones, turned to stone over the years, but still impressive enough that their location on Nagas Hill marks the origin of Ironborn kingship and the site of their traditional king's moots. In A Feast for Crows, it says... The ribs of Naga rose from the earth like the trunks of great white trees, as wide around as a drummond's mast and twice as tall. Now, a drummond mast could be upwards of 20 to 30 feet tall, meaning Naga's ribs are described as being 50 feet tall, give or take. That's nearly the equivalent of a five-story building, and if we're talking about ribs, as is commonly assumed, the scale of an animal possessing that rib cage must be immense. By comparison, the largest animal on Earth, the blue whale, has ribs about nine feet long. So a truly staggering and fantastic size described by George there. The jawbones of a blue whale, incidentally, are known to be about 25 feet tall, which seems roughly in keeping with Tyrion's description of Vagar's jaws. You could have ridden a horse down Vagar's gullet. So for an in-world comparison, consider that Naga may have been as much as five times bigger than Vagar. Not sure if George has done all the math there, but we think for an island-destroying sea monster, that's probably not too far off, although considering the bones are described as great white trees, we certainly can't ignore the possibility that Naga's bones are simply fossilized weirwood trunks and the story of Naga, a myth that evolved to explain their presence and other natural phenomenon. And the next legendary dragon we want to discuss has no name and may not even be a single creature. And that's the persistent idea that there's a dragon beneath Winterfell, as indicated in this quote from the World of Ice and Fire. Hot springs such as the one beneath Winterfell have been shown to be heated by the furnaces of the world, the same fires that made the fourteen flames or the smoking mountains of Dragonstone. Yet the small folk of Winterfell and the Winter Town have been known to claim that the springs are heated by the breath of a dragon that sleeps beneath the castle. The idea of a dragon slumbering beneath a castle is another thing lifted directly from real-world mythology. In Wales, they tell the story of King Vortigern, who, to escape the threat of invading Saxons, planned to build a mighty fortress on a hilltop in Snowdonia, the mountainous northwest region of the country. The building site was plagued by ill luck until a local lad called Merthyn Emrys convinced the king that there were two dragons sleeping under a lake beneath the fortress and that it was they who were responsible for the bad luck. 
Vortigern dug into the hill beneath the fortress and sure enough discovered an underground lake. Once the lake was drained, two slumbering dragons were revealed, a red dragon and a white, representing the native Britons and the Saxons respectively, who then awoke and began to fight in the sky above the hilltop. Soon enough, the white dragon was chased away and the red returned to its lair where he sleeps still, to this day, the celebrated symbol of Wales. The castle was called Dinas Emrys in honor of the boy, who went on to have a long and illustrious career as a wizard known as Merlin. But that's a story for another day. And getting back to Winterfell, the idea of dragons beneath the castle plays out in a number of ways during the series, with Fire and Blood reporting Mushroom's claim that Gisseri's Valerian's Vermax left a clutch of eggs in the crypts, only to summarily dismiss it due to the assumption that Vermax was male. And Bran Stark, through his wolf Summer's eyes, sees something that sounds like a dragon in the sky above the castle after it's torched by Ramsay Bolton. It says, The smoke and ash clouded his eyes, and in the sky he saw a great winged snake whose roar was a river of flame. He bared his teeth, but then the snake was gone. And of course we assumed that the wolf was seeing the fire that burned the castle and correlating the shapes of the dancing flames with a living creature. But the imagery is undoubtedly that of a dragon, and the imagery is what matters. The continuing association of Winterfell with a dragon slumbering beneath its walls, whether real or symbolic, is truly fascinating in light of the very strong Arthurian parallels of such a tale and in the story of Lyanna Stark and her son. Given this association of dragons with the North and of the North with winter, we also have to wonder about the existence of the so-called ice dragon. Ice dragons are said to reside in the region of the Shivering Sea, east of Westeros and north of Essos, a land of frigid winds, frozen seas and glaciers that advance and recede with the seasons. The world of ice and fire describes ice dragons like this. These colossal beasts, many times larger than the dragons of Valyria, are said to be made of living ice, with eyes of pale blue crystal and vast translucent wings, through which the moon and stars can be glimpsed as they wheel across the sky. Ice dragons supposedly breathe cold, a chill so terrible that it can freeze a man solid in half a heartbeat. Now, ice dragons are part of the legendary oeuvre of the North. As we know, Old Nan used to tell her charges stories about ice dragons, and Jon Snow thinks of them more than once. They also provide the name of the Westerosi version of our constellation Ursa Minor and the North Star Polaris. In the Westerosi night sky, the ice dragon constellation features a blue eye that orients to the north. Similar to Naga, these legendary beasts may simply be mythological creations by people in the distant past to explain or describe a natural phenomenon. But in a world where regular dragons actually exist, who can say? And speaking of regular dragons, now we're going to take some time to recap all of the known historical dragons. Aegon's dragons were named for the gods of old Valyria. Visenya's dragon was Vagar, Rhaenys had Meraxes, and Aegon rode Beleriand, the Black Dread. 
It was said that Vagar's breath was so hot that it could melt the knight's armor and cook the man inside, that Meraxes swallowed horses whole, and Balerion, his fire was as black as his scales, his wings so vast that whole towns were swallowed up in their shadow when he passed overhead. While the vast majority of named dragons belonged to House Targaryen, one notable one, though Valyrian, belonged to another house of the Freehold, Terax, the dragon of Gennara Belaris. At some unspecified time prior to the doom, inspired by a distinct lack of information about the continent of Sothorios, Gennara and her dragon flew south for longer than anyone had ever done before or since. But in spite of a round trip that lasted three years, the pair never discovered the southern shore of the continent, instead encountering seemingly endless deserts, mountains and jungles. Upon their return, Gennara declared Sothorios to be a land without end, and few have even attempted to do what she did since. Incidentally, Terex may be an homage to Marvel Comics as it's the name of a villain who appeared in the late 70s in Marvel's Fantastic Four, a comic we know that George has read since he was a young boy. When the Targaryens moved to Dragonstone a bare dozen years before the Doom, they brought five dragons with them. Considering that Valyrians had once deployed hundreds of dragons in their Rhoynish Wars, the fact that House Targaryen was actually a fairly minor house in their homeland seems pretty plain. After the Doom, only those five dragons survived, plus one more for a time. The Dragon Lord, Orion, whose house and dragon are not named, was apparently in Cohor during the explosion that was the Doom of Valyria a former lumber camp that had been settled by followers of a god known as the Black Goat, Kohor is the easternmost of the free cities and has a reputation as a city of sorcerers who follow the black arts, practicing blood sacrifice and magic, divination, and necromancy. Unlike the Targaryens, who went as far west as they could manage after Daenys' dream of the impending doom, Orion's response to the explosion was to declare himself Emperor of Valyria, marshal a force of 30,000 men and head off to reclaim the Valyrian Peninsula. Neither he, his dragon, nor his massive army were ever heard from again, leaving, as far as we know, only the five Targaryen dragons on Dragonstone. Of those five, four eventually died, leaving only the youngest, Valerion the Black Dread, the last living creature ever to have seen Valyria before the Doom. But at least two eggs hatched on Dragonstone prior to the conquest, the hatchlings, Vagar, and Meraxes. This gives us the famous trio that were eventually claimed by Aegon Targaryen and his two sister wives. Valerion is the most famous of all the Targaryen dragons, and given there appear to have been just three bonded dragons, Beleriand, Vagar, and Meraxes, at the time of the conquest, if dragons mate as other creatures do, it's pretty likely that Beleriand sired many of the next generation dragons on one or the other of his contemporaries. This big daddy dragon was named after a Valyrian god and had scales and wings of black. His fire was also black, sometimes containing swirls of red. 
At the height of his power, those flames could fuse sand into glass, and his jaws were so big he could swallow a mammoth whole. Balerion was ultimately ridden by four Targaryens that we know of, the Conqueror himself, his second son Maegor, his great-granddaughter Arya, and his great-great-grandson Viserys I. But given Balerion was over a hundred years old at the time of the conquest, we certainly can't rule out other riders prior to Aegon. As an example, the other hundred-year-old dragons we know of had at least two riders during that time, as we'll see. While Balerion's first two riders, Aegon and Maegor, are well-known as Lords of the Seven Kingdom, and Balerion features prominently in the stories of both of their raids, the story of Arya Targaryen and Balerion is something that bears repeating. Arya was the oldest daughter of Aegon the Young Crowned and his sister-wife Rhaena Targaryen. As such, she was her father's heir, and when her great-uncle Maegor killed her father in battle and later married her mother— Arya was named his heir as well. Arya was a twin, and her minute's younger sister, Rhaella, had been sent to the Faith in Old Town to become a scepter. Due to a dramatic personality change that took place around the time Jaehaerys was crowned in Old Town following Maegor's death, many suspect that the formerly timid Arya and the more spirited Rhaella actually switched places so that each girl was able to live a life more suited to her personality. In any case, it was a very spirited girl going by the name Arya who lived on Dragonstone with her mother Raina in 54 AC when at the age of 12, frustrated with being displaced as heir to the throne by the birth of Jaehaerys and Alicent's children, and kept in relative seclusion on a dreary island, Arya mounted the riderless Balerion and disappeared from the Seven Kingdoms. King Jaehaerys had agents searching for his niece across Westeros and much of Essos, and Arya's mother Reyna did no less, but there was no sign of the massive black dragon or the little girl who had claimed him until about 18 months after they disappeared, when the Black Dread appeared in the sky above the Red Keep, with a ragged and emaciated Princess Arya clinging to his back. She managed to say only, please, and I never, before she collapsed in the arms of the Kingsguard who rushed to catch her. Burning with fever and with blood in her eyes, she was rushed to Grand Maester Benefer. The guard, Sir Lucamore Strong, would soon be telling people, there was something inside her, something moving that made her shudder and twist in my arms. Until Jaehaerys commanded him to silence, that is. Grandmaster Benefer never spoke of the things he saw other than to forbid the king and queen to see their niece, telling them they wouldn't want to see her in the condition she was in. But Septon Bath, called upon to deliver the rights of the dying to the sick princess, recorded the event in full in his private papers. Arya wasn't just feverish, she was burning from within, and Sir Lucamore hadn't been wrong. There were things inside her that moved and twisted, and all the while the child cooked from within and begged for death. But the worst was when the two men lowered her body into a tub of ice in an attempt to relieve the burning. The shock, Bath reports, stopped Arya's heart and gave her the death she had begged for, but it also caused 
the writhing things within her to emerge. Here is Bath's description. The things, mother have mercy. I do not know how to speak of them. They were worms with faces, snakes with hands, twisting, slimy, unspeakable things that seemed to writhe and pulse and squirm as they came bursting from her flesh. Some were no bigger than my little finger, but one at least was long as my arm. Oh, warrior, protect me. The sounds they made. Barth went on to offer his explanation for where the girl and dragon had been all those months, starting with the assumption that Aria had neither the knowledge nor the force of will to direct Balerion as to their destination, he reached the conclusion that the only place they could have gone while eluding all the searchers in Westeros and Essos alike was Valyria itself, the land of Balerion's birth. He attributes the horrible creatures that had inhabited Arya's flesh to Valyrian blood magic and whatever sorcery they had practiced that had led to the doom— those things and worse are what must inhabit Valyria now, he concluded, and he revealed one other thing that no one else recorded. Balerion had wounds as well, that enormous beast, the Black Dread, the most fearsome dragon ever to soar through the skies of Westeros, returned to King's Landing with half-healed scars that no man recalled ever having seen before, and a jagged rent down his left side almost nine feet long, a gaping red wound from which his blood still dripped, hot and smoking. No one ever discovered more about that fateful trip, and not long after, Jaehaerys issued an edict forbidding any citizens of Westeros from visiting Valyria, and any ships suspected of having sailed the smoking sea that surrounded it from landing at any port in the Seven Kingdoms. Valerian recovered from his wounds, but would spend the last decades of his life in the Dragon Pit, guarded by dragon keepers, until Prince Viserys, grandson of Jaehaerys and future king, claimed him for his own in 93 AC. Slow and sluggish, Balerion struggled to take to the air, and after a brief flight, Viserys never rode him again. He would die a year later, and his skull would be displayed in the Red Keep, along with that of his former mate, Meraxes. Meraxes, named for a Valyrian goddess, had golden eyes and silver scales and was ridden by Queen Rhaenys. She hatched sometime during the Century of Blood, following the Doom. Because she was said to be larger than Vagar during the Conquest, we can probably guess she was older, born sometime between 114 and 70 BC. And because her first known rider wasn't born until around 25 BC, we can't say for sure that Rhaenys was Meraxes' first and only rider. Meraxes and Rhaenys were an integral part of the conquest, but both dragon and rider, as we said, were killed at the Hellholt during the First Dornish War in 10 AC. Vagar, who we know was born around 70 BC, since she was said to be 200 years old at the time of her death during the Dance of the Dragons, may have also had another rider before Visenya Targaryen, about four years older than her sister Rhaenys, claimed Vagar sometime after 20 BC. Vagar was only relatively recently described by George as bronze with greenish-blue highlights and bright green eyes. Along with Beleriand, she's the only dragon to have had at least four known riders, though as we said, either could have had more. 
After Visenya's death in 44 AC, Vagar was riderless for several decades until she was claimed by Balon, the Spring Prince, in 73 AC. Following Balon's death in 101 AC, Vagar was again riderless for several years before being claimed by 12-year-old Lena Valarion, the daughter of Princess Rhaenys Targaryen and the first Valarion that we know of to ride a dragon. Lena died in 120 AC and Vagar was quickly and controversially claimed by Prince Aemon Targaryen, the second son of King Viserys I and his second wife, Alicent Hightower. Aemon lost an eye in a brawl with his Valerian cousins following his first ride on Vagar, but he counted it a good trade. Vagar was a key part of the Green Army during the Dance of the Dragons until her death along with her rider in a battle above the God's Eye in 130 AC near the end of the Civil War. The dragon on the other side of that battle was Caraxes, a huge lean red dragon known as the Bloodworm, ridden first by Prince Aemon Targaryen, son of Jaehaerys and Alassan, and later by his nephew, Prince Daemon. All in all, a stunning 16 Targaryen dragons would perish in the conflict, as we'll recount shortly. First, let's introduce a few others who had multiple riders. Only Quicksilver's fire has been described as silver, but given the name, it's probably a safe bet that he had largely silver coloration. Hatched around 10 AC, the young dragon quickly bonded with Prince Aenys Targaryen not long after his mother, Queen Rhaenys, died in Dorne. Aenys succeeded his father, the Conqueror, as king in 37 AC, but when he himself died five years later, his brother Magor, riding Balerion, seized the crown that should have gone to Aenys' son Aegon. Aegon was able to claim his late father's dragon and resist his uncle for a year, but when they met in battle in the Riverlands in 43 AC, it was hardly even a contest for Balerion to tear the much smaller Quicksilver apart. Dragon and rider perished at the battle beneath the god's eye, and Aegon's widow Reyna fled to Fair Isle with her dragon, Dreamfire. Dreamfire was a very young dragon at this point, probably just over ten years old, and had bonded with Princess Reyna as a hatchling. Described as primarily pale blue with silver markings, silver crests, and pale blue wings, Dreamfire was especially beautiful and is known to have produced numerous clutches of eggs, the first two possibly sired by Rayner's late husband's Quicksilver, but a later one almost certainly sired by Balerion. This clutch would later hatch at Dragonstone, though we're not told if the dragons were ever claimed by riders. After Rayner's death in 73 AC, Dreamfire would return to the Dragon Pit in King's Landing, where she spent several riderless decades before being claimed by Princess Helena Targaryen. Since Helena wasn't involved in the actual fighting during the dance, Dreamfire remained in the Dragon Pit, where she perished in 130 AC during the tragic event known as the Storming of the Dragon Pit. Four other dragons would die that day as well. Morgul and Shrykos, young dragons who had bonded with Helena's twin children, 
Taraxes bonded with Rhaenyra Targaryen's son Joffrey Valerian, and Cyrax, Rhaenyra's own mount. The formidable yellow she-dragon, named after a Valyrian goddess and born during the reign of King Jaehaerys, had been bonded with Princess Rhaenyra since she was seven years old. And for more details on this and other events from the Dance of the Dragons, we encourage you to catch our multi-part series on the dance produced in collaboration with our friends at History of Westeros. Continuing with dragons that had multiple known riders, Maelie's the Red Queen was first bonded with and ridden by Princess Alyssa Targaryen, daughter of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, and sister-wife to Balon, the Spring Prince. Because of her size, it's thought that Maelie's was probably born during the reign of the Conqueror and, together with Caraxes in Dreamfire, would have been close to a hundred years old during the dance. By that time, she was bonded with and ridden by Princess Rhaenys, daughter of Jaehaerys' eldest son Aemon, known to history as the Queen Who Never Was. Maelie's died with her rider during a battle at Rook's Rest during the Civil War, and her skull was brought back to King's Landing and mounted along with numerous others in the Red Keep. Silverwing and Vermithor can be discussed together as they were bonded with Jaehaerys and Alysanne Targaryen and spent much of their lives as a pair. Silverwing hatched from a cradle egg given to her sister Alysanne by Princess Rhaena Targaryen, the origin of that practice of Targaryen cradle eggs that would continue for generations to come. Vermithor was older and by the time of his rider's ascension was the largest Targaryen dragon after Balerion and Vagar. Like Dreamfire, Caraxes, and Maelie's, Vermithor was at least a century old during the dance, and all four of them likely hatched from eggs produced by Vagar or possibly Meraxes and sired by Balerion. Silverwing, as her name indicates, was a silvery she-dragon, while Vermithor was a bronze dragon with huge tan wings, often called the Bronze Fury. The two spent several riderless decades on Dragonstone after the deaths of Alison and Jaehaerys until they were claimed on behalf of the Blacks by the Seeds Ulf the White and Hugh Hammer during the dance, both of whom were ultimately assassinated when they and their dragons became a danger to the Greens' cause to which they had defected. Vermithor died at the Second Battle of Tumbleton along with the dragons Tessarion and Seasmoke. Following his death, it was reported that Silverwing, who was by then riderless and had fled during the dragon battle, returned to a light near her partner's body. After trying to lift his lifeless wing with her nose several times, she flew off to make her lair on an island in Red Lake in the Reach for an unknown number of years. It is assumed that she died there not long after, probably also around a hundred years old. Seasmoke, a pale, silvery-grey dragon who perished with Vermithor at Tumbleton, was bonded with young Laenor Valerian at the time of the Great Council of 101. After Laenor's death in 120 AC, he resided on the Dragonmont at Dragonstone until he was claimed by the seed Adam of Hull. Adam was either Laenor's natural son or his bastard half-brother, depending on which story you believe, and it was he who rode Seasmoke into the second battle at Tumbleton in 130, dying along with his dragon in the three-way dragon battle with Vermithor and Tessarion. 
Tessarion was a she-dragon known as the Blue Queen. With wings and flames of bright cobalt blue, her claws, crest and belly were the colour of bright copper. She hatched sometime between 115 and 120 AC from the cradle egg of Prince Daron Targaryen, known as the Daring, who was the youngest of Alicent Hightower's children. Daron was killed early in the Second Battle of Tumbleton, and so Tessarion, like Vermithor, was riderless during the three-way dragon duel that ended the battle. In addition to Rhaenyra's son Joffrey's Taraxes, her older son's dragons, Arax and Vermax, hatched from cradle eggs and ridden by Lucerys and Gisaris Valerian respectively, both died in 129, early in the conflict. Arax was killed along with Lucerys at Storm's End by Aemond One-Eye riding Vagar, the first dragon death of the war, while Vermax and Gisaris died in the Battle of the Gullet, possibly brought down by a crossbow bolt or even a grapnel hook that caused dragon and rider to crash into Blackwater Bay. Earlier in the same engagement, a ship that was meant to carry Rhaenyra's two youngest sons to safety in Pentos had encountered the incoming fleet of the Triarchy, acting in alliance with the Greens in King's Landing. Nine-year-old Aegon mounted his dragon Stormcloud for the first time and was carried to safety on Dragonstone at the expense of Stormcloud's life. The young dragon died of his wounds moments after bringing his rider to safety. Speaking of Aegons, Rhaenyra's half-brother Aegon the Elder rode Sunfire the Golden, a beautiful dragon with gleaming gold scales, pale pink wing membranes and golden flames, said by Gildane to be the most beautiful dragon who ever lived. Sunfire's name may have been another homage by George to Marvel Comics since there was a character in the X-Men known as Sunfire with an I. Sunfire with a Y was wounded at the Battle of Rook's Rest where Melius was killed, but recovered enough to return to Dragonmont where his rider discovered him. Even as Rhaenyra took King's Landing and sat on the Iron Throne, her half-brother was able to take her seat on Dragonstone using trickery and it was there that Sunfire fought his final battle against Bela Targaryen's Moondancer. Moondancer was a slender, pale green dragon with horns, crest and wing bones of pearl. Her rider was the daughter of Lena Valerion and Daemon Targaryen, and the pair confronted Aegon on Sunfire as they entered Dragonstone. Though the much smaller Moondancer was killed, Sunfire was gravely wounded once again and never left the castle yard of Dragonstone again, perishing there not long after. Both riders survived to play roles in the final chapter of the Civil War, though neither ever rode a dragon again. Lady Baylor's twin sister, Raina, hatched one of Cyrax's eggs late in the dance. Morning had pale pink scales with black horns and crest and was large enough to be ridden by 135 AC. Morning was one of only four known dragons living at the end of the dance and it's unclear how long she lived, though she couldn't have outlived her rider since the last dragon died sometime during the 26-year reign of her half-brother Aegon the Younger. In addition to being a time of many dragon deaths, the dance was also the time when the first wild dragon was tamed and ridden. 
As we've discussed, at the time, there were three wild dragons living on Dragonstone, known as Sheepstealer, Grey Ghost, and the Cannibal by the local small folk. Grey Ghost, a pale, grey-white dragon, the color of morning mist, was the youngest, known to avoid men and to subsist mainly on a diet of fish. He lived high on the eastern side of the Dragon Mont, and during the call for seeds to claim dragons during the dance, several would-be riders attempted to find him, but without luck. The cannibal was the oldest of the wild dragons, huge and black as coal with menacing green eyes. No records exist that note his birth, but many of Dragonstone's small folk insist he was there before the Targaryens arrived, a claim that would make him well over 230 years old at the time of the dance. Technically, this claim is impossible to prove. As we mentioned earlier, Balerion is the only known dragon to die of old age, 208 years after coming to Dragonstone with Lord Aenar Targaryen. But we don't know his birth year, so it's hard to reach exact conclusions about a dragon's natural lifespan from the available information. But along with a claim of great age comes the idea that Cannibal might come of different stock than his domesticated cousins, and the particular habit that gave Cannibal his name actually lends weight to the idea that he existed on Dragonmont prior to the Targaryen settlement. In the real world, sexually selected infanticide is relatively common amongst males of certain species, where a dominant male will recognize and kill any offspring in his social group that are not his own. Examples of this are to be found in primates, felines, ursines, equines, rodents, and more. So when we're told that the cannibal has a reputation for eating the eggs and hatchlings of his domesticated cousins, a habit that's never mentioned amongst Targaryen dragons, we do have to wonder if it's this particular biological instinct at work. The cannibal was essentially a background character in Fire and Blood and is presumed to have died not long after the Dance of the Dragons. The last mention of him is the claim that he flew over the funeral ship of Lord Corlys Valerian in 132 AC, though whether as a salute or in hopes of a good meal, none could say. Maesters, of course, dispute the story, but it's true that there has been no sign of the cannibal since that time. If he died shortly after the dance, that would place his lifespan at around 250 years, possibly, a reasonable comparison with the Black Dread himself. And the final wild dragon is the one known as Sheepstealer. A skinny, mud-brown dragon, Sheepstealer got his name due to his taste for sheep, though he wouldn't bother the shepherds if they didn't get in his way. During the dance, a number of potential claimants tried to mount him, but as we discussed earlier, it was the young girl known as Nettles who was successful due to her strategy of bringing the wild dragon sheep carcasses until he was tolerant enough of her to let her approach. Sheepstealer was born early in the reign of King Jaehaerys, and so may have been close to 100 years old, though he wasn't noted to be as large as Caraxes or Vermithor, both of whom he joined in battle during the dance. Sheepstealer was one of four dragons to survive the dance, having been sent off into hiding along with his rider by Prince Daemon before he confronted his nephew Aemond at Harrenhal. 
Some time later, a royal army on its way to the Erie to support Lady Jane Arryn's chosen heir encountered sheep steel and nettles in the Mountains of the Moon. And much later, an offshoot to the Painted Dogs clan in the Mountains of the Moon are noted to have come to worship a so-called Fire Witch and her dragon. Yeah, the burned men, as they're known, are the most feared of all the mountain clans, and their practice of burning off a body part as part of a coming-of-age ritual is thought to have originated with members of the tribe sending their sons to the fire witch with gifts and to face the flames of her dragon as a way of proving their manhood. Sheepstealer, at over a hundred years old, may not have outlived his rider— At least, there's no mention of him after the origin story of the burned men, and so it's assumed that he died of old age, along with nettles, in the Mountains of the Moon. Now, having covered all the historical dragons, let's move on to dragon eggs. It was much bigger than a hen's egg, though not so big as he'd imagined. Fine red scales covered its surface, shining bright as jewels by the lights of lamps and candles. It was heavier than he'd expected. You could smash a man's head with this and never crack the shell. The scales were smooth beneath his fingers, and the deep, rich red seemed to shimmer as he turned the egg in his hands. Blood and flame, he thought, but there were gold flecks in it as well, and whirls of midnight black. All dragons begin as eggs, and naturally we have many fascinating descriptions of eggs, clutches of eggs, and even a handful of dramatic egg stories. The Targaryen custom of cradle eggs means we have numerous descriptions of those and opportunities to see the bonding process in real time as those eggs would frequently, though not always, hatch. As we mentioned earlier, no one knows why certain eggs never hatch, whether it's down to the lack of a bond with the human who possesses it or something inherently wrong with the egg itself is left a mystery. Certainly a number of Targaryen princelings whose cradle eggs failed to hatch would later claim hatchlings or full-grown dragons from the dragon pit. Many eggs go undescribed other than the dragons who might hatch from them, or they're simply part of a specific clutch. Both Dreamfire and Cyrax are noted as being especially prolific in this regard, with many of Cyrax's eggs apparently being given to the children of her rider. Other dragons known to be female are Vagar, Meraxes, and Meles, and though none are noted to have produced clutches, as we've pointed out, given there appear to have been just the three dragons, Balerion, Vega, and Meraxes, at the time of the conquest, it's pretty likely that Balerion sired many of the next-generation dragons on one or the other of his contemporaries. In fact, if traditional mating is required, the next male dragon who could have sired offspring that we know of are probably Vermithor and Caraxes. As we said earlier, Caraxes may have sired many of Cyrax's eggs, and a number of those eggs were given to Daemon's and Rhaenyra's children. Lady Raina possessed four eggs before she bonded with Morning. The first one hatched a broken thing that died within hours, while the others were part of a trio from Cyrax that she brought with her to the Eyrie during the dance, one of which hatched Morning. 
Damon and Rhaenyra's youngest son, Viserys, also had an egg, likely from Cyrax, that was in his possession when he was captured by the Triarchy. Though he was well-treated and ultimately returned to his family, his egg is never mentioned again, and we must assume it was taken from him, possibly sold, and remains in unknown hands in Essos. Another child during the dance who had an egg that was lost is Aegon the Elder's youngest son, Maelor. When the child was killed at Bitterbridge, a melee to seize the egg may have been at least part of the cause. The egg, pale green with swirls of silver, was later recovered and sent to the green commander, Lord Ormond Hightower, at Longtable, after which it's never mentioned again. Given that Lord Ormond was killed at Tumbleton by the Lord of Barrowton, Roddy the Ruin, not long afterwards, it's impossible to say if the egg was ever returned to the Dragon Pit, if it remained in the possession of House Hightower, or if it vanished into other unknown hands. Following the death of Sunfire, Aegon the Elder had seven eggs brought to him at King's Landing. Gildane notes that King Aegon kept them in his own chambers, but none yielded a dragon, while Mushroom elaborates about a large purple and gold egg that the king sat on in hopes of hatching, but it had as well been a purple and gold turd for all the good it did, adds Mushroom. This, of course, raises the question of whether a rider can claim a new dragon if their first one dies. Given the manner of most dragon deaths, we don't get a lot of information in this direction. But as we've said, Aegon and his sister Rhaenyra certainly seem to have considered it to be possible. A few years later, Baylor Targaryen and Alan Velaryon had a daughter named Lena, who was given a cradle egg in keeping with family tradition. This egg hatched, but it was a blind and wingless white worm that attacked the babe in a cradle and was summarily chopped to bits by Lord Alan. The Targaryen custom of giving cradle eggs continued as far as we know, as long as the dynasty continued on the throne but none of the ones we know about after this would ever hatch. Princess Elena, Aegon III's daughter, had a platinum white and bright golden egg that was her pride and joy. Prince Aegon, the future Aegon V, described his egg as white with green swells and his brother Arion's as gold and silver with veins of fiery colour. His other brothers, Daron and Aemon, also had eggs, though they're not described, and since Elena and her two sisters were given eggs, we have to assume that Aegon's sisters Ray and Diella also had eggs of their own. The last dragon, a green female, noted to be sickly, small, misshapen and stunted with withered wings, died during the reign of Aegon III. She apparently lived long enough and in close enough proximity to a male to leave a clutch of five eggs which are never described, but could be among those later distributed to various Targaryen infants, of which there were certainly very many during the reign of Daron II. Eggs were common enough that King Aegon V Targaryen used seven in the ceremony that likely involved fire and blood magic that caused the tragedy at Summerhall. Some of these were likely to be unhatched eggs belonging to family members, of whom seven were probably present at the time. Their whereabouts afterwards are unknown, possibly they were destroyed in the fire, or they were still at Summerhall, buried beneath the wreckage. 
While Fire and Blood notes that several she-dragons were regularly producing clutches of eggs during the reign of Jaehaerys I, and we know that Cyrax continued to be prolific as well, after the last dragon died, there will not have been any source of new eggs for House Targaryen. Yet they continued to find eggs as cradle gifts, and even in the main series, it's rumored that there's a horde of dragon eggs on Dragonstone. Eggs were certainly plentiful enough that during the reign of Aegon IV, the unworthy, the king gifted his hand, Lord Butterwell of White Walls, with an egg, red with golden flecks and black whirls, as payment for access to his three maiden daughters, all of whom Aegon allegedly impregnated in a single night. This egg would later be the centrepiece of the failed Second Blackfire Rebellion. Since Brynden Rivers arrived on the scene and the egg seemed to have vanished, we can assume it was repossessed by the throne, though where it went from there, none can say. A couple of other non-Targaryens are also noted to have possessed dragon eggs, however briefly. Prince Daemon's concubine, Myceria, was presented with an egg by her lover when he learned she was pregnant, but his brother the king discovered and ordered the egg returned and Myceria sent away. Then in the main series, Euron Greyjoy brags that he had a dragon egg, but threw it into the sea in a dark mood. This is often seen as a metaphor for Euron hiring the faceless men to literally throw his brother Balon into the sea, with the cost of killing a king being so enormous that only a dragon egg could cover it. Though Euron is rumored to have gone to Valyria, given the instances of loose eggs, such as the one that originally belonged to Viserys Targaryen, or Maelor's green egg that may have been lost after Tumbleton, we think it's entirely likely that the Pirate King came across an egg somewhere far less dangerous. And speaking of loose eggs, we've saved the best for last. Magister Illyrio murmured a command and four burly slaves hurried forward, bearing between them a great cedar chest bound in bronze. When she opened it, she found piles of the finest velvets and damasks the free cities could produce, and resting on top, nestled in the soft cloth, three huge eggs. Danny gasped. They were the most beautiful things she had ever seen, each different than the others, patterned in such rich colors that at first she thought they were crusted with jewels, and so large it took both of her hands to hold one. She lifted it delicately, expecting that it would be made of some fine porcelain or delicate enamel or even blown glass, but it was much heavier than that, as if it were all of solid stone. The surface of the shell was covered in tiny scales, and as she turned the egg between her fingers, they shimmered like polished metal in the light of the setting sun. One egg was deep green with burnished bronze flecks that came and went depending on how Danny turned it. Another was pale cream streaked with gold. The last was black, as black as a midnight sea, yet alive with scarlet ripples and swirls. What are they? she asked, her voice hushed and full of wonder. Dragon's eggs from the shadowlands beyond Ashai. The eons have turned them to stone, yet they still burn bright with beauty. In 54 AC, Lady Alyssa Farman, once a close friend and favourite of Princess Rhaena Targaryen, is noted to have stolen 
three eggs from the hatchery on Dragonstone, which were later sold to the Sea Lord of Bravos in exchange for the Bravosi shipyards, building her a very special ship called Sunchaser. The fates of both Sunchaser and the eggs remained unknown for years. On the second of his nine voyages, Corlys Valerian believed he saw the remains of Sunchaser in Ashai. But what about the three eggs sold to the Sea Lord? Well, in spite of the fact that the eggs Lady Alyssa stole are never described, many fans believe they could have reappeared in a Game of Thrones in the main series, in the scene we just heard the quote from. That's right, there's a compelling theory that Daenerys's eggs, gifted to her by Magister Illyrio Mopatis at her wedding to Caldrogo, which later and completely unexpectedly hatched into three young dragons, are one and the same as the three eggs Alyssa Farman stole from Dragonstone and sold to the Sea Lord of Bravos nearly 150 years previously. Besides the fact that three eggs disappeared to Essos and then many years later three eggs mysteriously appeared in Essos, there's a comment that George has inserted into Fire and Blood that seems like a highly explicit wink and nod. When discussing the ramifications of those eggs falling into the wrong hands, Grand Maester Benefer tells King Jaehaerys not to worry, since in all likelihood the eggs would eventually turn to stone away from the fires of Dragonstone. The king replies, Then some spicemonger in Pentos will find himself possessed of three very costly stones. Hmm, <laughs> this seems fairly explicit. So Danny's eggs originating from Dragonstone, just as she herself did, makes a lot of sense, especially in light of the fact that Drogon is said to be Balerion come again. And given the timing of the egg theft, it's highly likely that Balerion may have been the sire of Drogon's egg. We've already talked about the birth of Danny's dragons, and so here we'll just note a few things about their size and description. Danny's are the only dragons for whom we have a description of the dragon as well as the eggs from which they hatched. We noted earlier that it seems clear from those descriptions that the main colour of the egg corresponds to the dragon scales, while the swirls or accents denote the accent colour of the dragon, found on horns, wings and crests. By the end of A Dance with Dragons, all three dragons are large enough to be ridden, though only Drogon has a rider in Daenerys. He is larger than Rhaegal and Viserion, who are said to be the size of horses. This is similar to the description used for Moondancer in Fire and Blood, who is likely more than 10 years old, whereas Danny's three are not even two years old. This is almost certainly a factor of the dreaded five-year gap being removed, though some readers wonder if there's magic or something special at work. Whatever the case, George needed dragons that are large enough to be ridden, and so we have them. Danny's dragons are named after her husband, Caldrogo, and her two brothers, Rhaegar and Viserys. 
Due to their significance to the main story, we have the most complete descriptions of these three, and they are simply stunning. Drogon's egg is described as black as a midnight sea, alive with scarlet ripples and swirls, and after he's grown large enough to ride, it says that his scales and teeth are black, his horns and spinal plates are blood red, while his eyes are smoldering red pits and his flame is black fire shot with red. A truly terrifying and magnificent dragon who, based on looks alone, seems to deserve the characterization of Balerion come again. Rhaegal hatched from a deep green egg with burnished bronze flecks into a dragon with scales and wings of jade green, bronze eyes, and black claws and teeth. His flames have been described as orange and yellow fire shot through with veins of green. Basarion seems like he might be the smallest and most shy of Danny's dragons, though he's noted to have a particular fondness for brown Ben plum. His egg was pale cream, streaked with gold, and likewise his scales are cream, while his horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are gold-colored. Like the others, his teeth and claws are black, while his eyes are described as two pools of molten gold, his flame, pale gold, shot through with red and orange. These three dragons will probably be the centerpieces of a lot of the action as A Song of Ice and Fire continues, but George's dragons in general have had a huge effect both in the story and in pop culture. And so, up next, we'll conclude the episode by summarizing what they've done within George's world and then measure their impact in the real world. It was on the great peninsula across from Slaver's Bay that those who brought an end to the empire of Old Gis, though not to all of their ways, originated. Sheltered there amidst the great volcanic mountains known as the Fourteen Flames were the Valyrians, who learned to tame dragons and make them the most fearsome weapon of war that the world ever saw. When the Valyrians put away their shepherd's crooks and mastered dragons, harnessing and subjugating them as no one else could, they completely shifted the balance of power in Essos. Before the dragons were tamed, western Essos had been dominated by the Giscari Empire, one of the oldest cultures on record, dating back thousands of years before Valyria. The World Book tells us, It was on the great peninsula across from Slaver's Bay that those who brought an end to the empire of old Gis originated. As Valyria grew in strength, it contested the might of Old Gis in a series of five epic wars. Despite their ruthless military efficiency and famed lockstep legions, the Giscari were ultimately no match for the Valyrians. Therein lies the power of dragons, the power to change the world and dominate a continent, and George has likened them to the power of nuclear weaponry in the modern world. In spite of bringing the Giscari Empire to its knees, though, the Valyrians were eager to adopt the worst traditions of Giscari culture. And the Giscari were heavily involved in slavery and the traffic of humans, and the Valyrians chose to follow suit. In A Feast for Crows, the kindly man informs Arya about the horrendous conditions Valyrian slaves were forced to work in. The wretched slaves toiled in the deep mines beneath the fourteen flames that lit the Freehold's nights of old. Most mines are dark and chilly places, cut from cold dead stone, but the fourteen flames were living mountains with veins of molten rock and hearts of fire. So the mines of old Valyria were always hot, and they grew hotter as the shafts were driven deeper, ever deeper. 
The slaves toiled in an oven. The rocks around them were too hot to touch. The air stank of brimstone and would sear their lungs as they breathed it. The soles of their feet would burn and blister even through the thickest sandals. Sometimes, when they broke through a wall in search of gold, they would find steam instead or boiling water or molten rock. Certain shafts were caught so low that the slaves could not stand upright but had to crawl or bend. For around 5,000 years, the Valyrian freehold stood and presided over unimaginable horrors from the slavery in the mines to the disgusting human experiments that were being conducted in Gagossus. Dragons facilitated this horror. Although we all love dragons and it's tempting to view them as wonderful exotic pets, the reality is that in this world they offer a frightening degree of power, a power that's open to be abused. If the Valyrians hadn't chosen to continue to reside in volcano territory, who's to say how long their slaver culture would have endured? Who or what could have possibly stopped them beside a cataclysmic event? Despite the power of who knows how many dragons, the Valyrian freehold didn't last forever, and from a meta perspective, the story is really about Westeros, and so George had to kill off Valyria. So the doom brought about the ruin of the Empire and the death of all but five of the dragons. Five doesn't sound like many, but it was enough to save dragons from extinction and give the prescient Targaryens who had fled the doom the power to take over the adjacent continent. Aegon the Conqueror, Visenya, Rhaenys, and their dragons took Westeros by storm. Without dragons of their own, nobody in Westeros could stand against a small contingent of Valyrians, and so the Targaryen dynasty in Westeros began. Once more, dragons shaped the world. Despite Targaryen power being undefeatable, and the number of dragons comfortably increasing to 20, the one threat against them was, well, themselves. The civil war known as the Dance of the Dragons was a bitter internecine battle that saw the numbers of Targaryens and dragons plummet. By the time of Aegon III's reign, the world book tells us, there were four dragons still living at the start of his reign, Silverwing, Morning, Sheepstealer and the Cannibal. So we know that three of these, Silverwing, the Cannibal and Sheepstealer, were roaming somewhere in the wild, leaving the Targaryens with just Baylor's young dragon mourning. In the world book, Maester Yandel gives us information about Aegon III and the last dragon. Aegon III dreaded the sight of dragons and had even less desire to ride upon one, but he was convinced that they would cow those who sought to oppose him. At Viserys's suggestion, he sent away for nine mages from Essos, attempting to use their arts to kindle a clutch of eggs. This proved both a debacle and a failure. Aegon III will always be remembered as the Dragon Bane, for the last Targaryen dragon died during his reign in the year 153 AC. And in the Hedge Knight, we get this snippet about the last dragon. Sir Arlen had been just a little boy when his grandfather had taken him to King's Landing, and how they'd seen the last dragon there the year before it died. She'd been a green female, small and stunted, her wings withered. None of her eggs had ever hatched. Some say King Aegon poisoned her, the old man would tell. The third Aegon that would be, not King Daron's father, but the one they named Dragonbane, or Aegon the Unlucky. 
He was afraid of dragons, and he'd seen his uncle's beast devour his own mother. The summers have been shorter since the last dragon died, and the winters longer and crueler. Sir Arlen brings up interesting points about the death of dragons. With the last dragon being unusually stunted, he theorized that Aegon III was responsible, and while the king killing a dragon doesn't make a lot of sense, another character conveys a similar conspiracy theory in the main series. Archmaester Marwyn of the Citadel is characterized as being a rather rebellious figure amongst his maester peers, and refers to them as the Grey Sheep. His Valyrian steel link tells us of his expertise in the higher mysteries, and given his nickname The Mage, it's well established that he's interested in magic. In A Feast for Crows, Marwyn insinuates that it was not Aegon III, but the maesters that killed the last dragon. He says, Who do you think killed all the dragons the last time around? Gallant dragon slayers armed with swords? He spat. The world the Citadel is building has no place in it for sorcery or prophecy or glass candles, much less for dragons. Ask yourself why Aemon Targaryen was allowed to waste his life upon the wall when by rights he should have been raised to Archmaester. His blood was why he could not be trusted, no more than I can. Given that scientifically-minded maesters might be opposed to dragons and magic, after witnessing the devastation of the Dance of the Dragons, there's a strong and believable motive. It's possible they could have used poisons, and so it's certainly an interesting comment from Marwyn. We hope to see more of him in the Winds of Winter as he makes his way to Danny and her dragons, and perhaps we'll get more comments on this matter that's known in the fandom as the Grand Maester Conspiracy. But, conspiracy theories aside, there's also the possibility that the final end of dragons came as a natural result of their rapid decline during the dance. If dragons are inextricably linked to magic in this world, surely their relationship goes two ways— Magic needs dragons, and dragons need magic. Perhaps the death of so many dragons reduced the levels of magic enough to affect eggs and hatchlings. We did call the death of the last dragon the final end, and we know that Targaryens tried and failed to hatch more eggs, but of course in the end, Danny uses three petrified eggs to bring dragons out of extinction in the main series. We've seen them born and grow from babies to a size big enough that Danny can ride Drogon. In contrast to her Valyrian forebears, though, she's attempting to use their power to disrupt the slave trade in Essos. We expect that in the Winds of Winter, she will head west with Drogon, Rhaegal and Viserion and attempt to restore the Targaryen dynasty. And so dragons will once again fly in the skies above Westeros but don't expect her conquest to be easy. In 2011, George said, Dragons are the nuclear deterrent, and only Danny has them, which in some ways makes her the most powerful person in the world. But is that sufficient? These are the kind of issues I'm trying to explore. The United States right now has the ability to destroy the world with our nuclear arsenal, but that doesn't mean we can achieve specific geopolitical goals. Power is more subtle than that. You can have the power to destroy, but it doesn't give you the power to reform or improve or build. Danny is also going to have to contend with the threat of the others who will soon be forging a path into Westeros with their army of the undead. If dragons are fire-made flesh, the others are ice-made flesh. 
but in some respects seemed strangely human. When George was asked if the ice and fire in the title of the series refers to the others and the dragons, he agreed, but also said there were layers of other meanings. The dragons give some balance to the cold magic we see at the beginning of the story, and it will be intriguing in the Winds of Winter and beyond to see how both of these species are affecting the strength of magic in Westeros. We wait with bated breath for the day they square off, which will surely be part of the endgame of the series. And of course, readers have many questions that relate to dragons and others. Can dragons be walked or controlled by the others? Are there otherly frosty-breathed ice dragons out there with cold blood? It's exciting just to imagine these two magical species coming into conflict with the fate of Westeros at stake. With everything we've learned about how George R. R. Martin's dragons have affected his world through this episode, let's conclude by contemplating how they've impacted the real world and why they've been such a pop culture hit. We think that dragons in A Song of Ice and Fire sit, somewhat bizarrely, in a spot in the Venn diagram crossover between cute pets and powerful weapons of mass destruction. These two points being polar opposites is perhaps why George's dragons are so appealing. Yeah, that's the formula that defines George's version of these mythological beasts. And this mix of adorable and powerful is what we think has captured the imaginations of so many readers and watchers across the globe. George's dragons have struck a chord. In fact, they are now a ubiquitous part of pop culture that have helped propel fantasy literature and television to new heights. A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones have succeeded in bringing dragons back to the front of the collective human consciousness where they belong. As we've shown, people throughout history all over the world have always thought about dragons. Now George has added his own contributions to the archetype, and maybe in hundreds of years, scholars will be highlighting the role his dragons have had in dragon mythology, legends, and folklore, as we did with Beowulf, Sigurd, and others today. It's no wonder George thanked Phyllis Eisenstein for telling him to include the dragons. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode all about dragons. We'll be back soon with another regular episode, but now, as always, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for putting the dragons in, and thanks to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. As usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here, too. Heartfelt thanks to AJ... Aegon the Sixth, the only Arsling you need, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashenot Yara, Oakenfist, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greyguard, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarion, the White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahu of what? 
Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, and welcome Matt M, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, anime lover Nicole, Nimble Nick Oneirik, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Raymond, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Sorn, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helmet, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioEstros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.